That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Well, I struck a nerve today. And, and I don't mean in a bad way. Like, sometimes a nerve needs to be struck to know that something's wrong. And something's definitely wrong. We're going to get to the Super Bowl. We're going to talk about the Niners and the Chiefs. We'll talk about Patrick Mahomes' legacy. You know who. Flying back from Japan, trying to get to the game in front of kickoff. We'll get to our great guests. We got great guests on today's show. P.J. Carlissimo with us, Dana Altman with us, Demi Lawrence, who works at the Portland Business Journal, will be with us. We'll talk to P.J. and Dana Altman about college basketball. We'll talk to Demi Lawrence of the Business Journal about her interview with the mayor of the city of Beaverton. We got great sound. We'll be all over the place. But I struck a nerve today, and, and I intended to. I, I uh, wrote a column today at johnconzano.com that is essentially a note or an open letter to youth sports parents. Yes, I'm talking to you. Calm down. Calm the bleep down. If you are out there and you're a youth sports parent, take a look in the mirror. Ask yourself, are you part of the problem or part of the solution? There's no middle ground. I got an email yesterday from a listener and reader. End of the email said this, five words, are parents ruining youth sports? And I didn't even have to open the email. I know the answer to that. Um, Apparently what happened is a sixth grade girls basketball team in one of the Portland suburbs, prominent suburb, coached by a woman. Played a game on Saturday. Coach thought it was a lazy effort. Didn't like the bad body language of the players on the bench during the game. Apparently a couple of the parents did not appreciate their children being described as lazy by the coach. They were not all so happy that the girls on the bench were told during a timeout to smile. Kind of like raise the energy. Come on, get it together. I mean, after all, they weren't playing in the game. Why should they be happy? Uh, Parents then complained to the league, threatened to pull their children from the team, And on Monday, the coaching staff was asked to step down. Nobody's surprised by this. Not if you've been to a ball field or a court. Uh, Not if you have attended a swim meet or a practice for one of your kids. You're not surprised at all by this. If you have officiated a game, you're going, hey, let me tell you, I've seen far worse. We have a shortage nationally of umpires, referees, and officials that is partly caused by the bad acting parents. A lot of parents out there feel like it's time to berate, harass, stalk on social media, yell at the official, yell at the umpire. 
And uh, I get it. Uh, you know, you love your children. I love my kids. But uh, you've lost your marbles. You know, parents, I'm talking to you. I have seen it firsthand. I saw a local dentist who screamed at a teenage umpire over a blown call. I saw the mother of a 15-year-old kid lobby the league officials to obtain a waiver so that her daughter could play 14 under and compete against 13 and 14-year-olds to dominate, build some confidence. I've seen parents undermine coaches, pull their kids off a club team because they didn't hear what they wanted to hear. And uh, I'm here to tell you, like, you can chase the athletic scholarship if you'd like. You can pay for the private lessons, hire a nutritional expert, invest in a strength coach, pay five grand to be on the top club team, lobby the coach for playing time. Uh, but if you do all that and only that, you are missing the point. Um, you know, we've talked about youth sports and the value of youth sports on this show. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. But I'm fired up about it when I hear that there's some parents out there yelling at officials, yell, you know, forcing referees out of the game, uh, trying to get the coach fired because the coach said, hey, that was a bad effort. It was a lazy effort. Um, you know, sometimes bad things happen in life. And I've said this before on the show, like you, people get sick. It's not fair. People get cancer. People get lose their job. They get laid off. Some you know, people find themselves in a failed relationship. Uh, you catch a tough break. Somebody runs a red light and T-bones your car. Like bad things sometimes happen. Adverse things happen. But you don't want the first time that your kid faces one of these adversities to be at age 21 or 28 or 35 or 42. You don't want that because those are big things that happen at those ages. You'd rather have your kid face some adversity at 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Okay. If you really want to prepare your kid for life, support them, talk with them, give them encouragement, and then stand at a safe distance and allow them to work a little through an obstacle safely. Like if it's a dangerous situation, of course, you step in. But if this is just, hey, my coach is demanding that I play harder, hey, my coach wants me to have good body language on the bench and support my teammates when I'm not in the game, and be an encouraging teammate, and I don't feel like being an encouraging teammate, or I struck out, or I'm not starting, allow your kid to work through that situation. Do not fix it for them. If you fix it for them, you are not preparing them for that time in life where they deal with a difficult circumstance, and they're going to need the confidence. They're going to need the resilience that they have developed at that age. You know, you, you need those things. Like, people mistake all the time, and I, I could go just crazy on this subject. People all the time mistake confidence with success, right? Pat Casey, the baseball coach at Oregon State, he has this saying, the longtime baseball coach, retired now, but he had this saying, won multiple national championships. He would say confidence is comfort, comfort is confidence. He didn't say confidence is success, like, you, you didn't derive the confidence from being successful. You derived the confidence from overcoming and dealing with some stuff and working through it and arriving in a position where you feel like, hey, I can handle anything here. I'm equipped to be here. That's confidence, folks. It's not the trophy. 
the plastic trophy we give away to everybody at the end of the season. Resilience is built from adversity. It's so simple. Don't do anything for your kids they can't do for themselves. Really. You know, uh, we've had guests on the show over time that have all underscored these ideas about resilience and perseverance and confidence and how what they got out of youth sports and how a good coach really helped them. And I feel like we got some parents right now out there that are some bad actors. And if I open the phone lines right now, I guarantee you people will call in and say, well, I saw this last week or this happened two weeks ago or this happened on my kid's team. There are a lot of good actors out there. There are some parents out there that aren't. Some parents have lost their minds. Like, I reached out to coaches today that are youth sports coaches who have been around a long time, and I said, what's going on out there? And they're like, it's horrible. You know, parents are going after the young coaches in particular. Parents are too involved. The anxiety level of the parents has infected the game. It's not fun for these kids. The increasing pressure is there. You know, private lessons, specialize, get the expensive equipment. And meanwhile, you know, we're, we're all looking at the reality of it. You know, we, the American Academy of Pediatrics says 70% of kids drop out of organized activities by the age of 13. And they don't drop out because, you know, they, they moved on to something else. They drop out because of overuse, overtraining, and burnout. That's sad to me. You know, we're going to talk with guests on today's show. We're going to kind of talk all around the topic. But here's my plea to you, youth sports parents. Calm down. Calm down. Do not berate the officials. Sometimes, a little dirty little secret, sometimes I think it's good if you get a bad call in a youth sports game. I know you're going, you're out of your mind. Like that that ball was out. How could that official call it that way? No, that might be the first time in a 9- or 10-year-old's life where they realize, hey, no, life's not fair. Sometimes you get a bad call in life. What are you going to do about it? You overcome. Good teams overcome. You put your head down, you work harder. You find a way because you're going to get bad calls in life. Happens all the time. And if you are somebody who's running off a volunteer coach or undermining the coach because your kid's not playing or gaming the system when you have a 15-year-old trying to get them in there so they can compete against the 13-year-olds and just dominate them, oh, we're going to build some confidence. You're not building any confidence by doing that. It's insane. And by the way, yes, I understand. I'm arguing for sanity while college football is off the rails. But I am concerned about your kids. It is not wise what we're seeing going on out there. I want your phone calls, 503-417-7575. I hit a nerve with this column I wrote this morning. If you haven't read it, check it out at johnconzano.com. Get a free subscription if you're not already subscribed or a paid subscription, whatever works. But check it out because I think there's something here. It speaks to a lot of the, the – I've heard from tons of officials. The comment section is fantastic, and the parents are weighing in. And some parents that I've heard from are going, oh, my gosh, I felt like you were talking to me. I realized I might be part of the problem. And if you are, great. Have that realization now because your memories from your kids' youth sports and your kids' memories should not be about you berating an official and chasing them into the parking lot. It should not be about, oh, how mom and dad got mad because I wasn't playing and they got my coach fired, or I switched clubs because things weren't going right. Like, what is that teaching your kid? What is that? Like, it's that Warren Buffett saying. Warren Buffett has this great quote. Somebody asked him, like, you know, for parenting advice. Because, of course, Warren Buffett, well, a billionaire, must have some 
great parenting advice, right? You know, what what does Warren Buffett know about parenting? Well, you know what he said? He said, you know, he was talking about the 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 gift that you give your kids. You know, part of the gift you give your kids could be an inheritance. But Warren Buffett said more kids are ruined by the behavior of their parents than the size of their inheritance. I want your phone calls. 503-417-7575. What are you seeing out there when it comes to youth sports, behavior of parents, the uh, going after coaches and officials? I want it all. Pastor Matt has called in. Pastor Matt, welcome back. Johnny, what's going on, man? How are you? I am I am in traffic on uh, Interstate 84 in the lovely uh, Rose City on my way from Pullman to Corvallis and this uh, this topic man just uh, is so huge. I think the fundamental problem with uh, parents and youth sports today is that we have a generation or two of parents who are not content or happy with their life. And so we have uh, youth sports that have become, in some ways, a proxy war in which parents can try and project uh, their own desires and their longing for fulfillment uh, and achievement upon their children. And, and I think it's, it's you know, it's going to kill the, the, uh, the, the sports. Um, it, it certainly ruins it. You know, it drives oh, safely. Yeah. So you're going you're going to Washington State Oregon State game. Are you sticking around Saturday for the two PM Oregon game? I I am uh, I took a couple of days off from the church and I am going to both games. Good for you. So uh yeah, I'm excited. And uh you know, driving in this traffic reminds me why I live in Pullman and not Portland. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you listening to the show. Pastor Matt, I hear from him once in a while. He uh he listens to the show from Pullman, Washington. Um, he's on to something there. I think part of it is maybe some parents, I can't speak for you, trying to find some fulfillment through their kids. I think there's also parents may feel that they have ownership of the teams because some of the club sports, uh, there's a real cost to it. You're paying a, you know, a coach essentially to coach the team, and you know, you're uh, maybe getting a little bit lost in that transaction thinking you're the owner of the team. I also think that, uh, you know, you got to ask yourself if you are one of those parents, you know, what environment you came through or what is it about the environment you're in that's causing you to act that way. Steven, you've been around youth sports. You're seeing this stuff. Um, what do you see? Yeah, I'm right in the thick of it. Uh, my son, third grader, plays on a third and fourth grade basketball team, and it's a competitive league. Like, it really is a competitive team. Um, and I'll say this, like the parents on my kid, son's team are actually really good. Like there's not a lot of outbursts. There's not a lot of problems. And the coach is awesome. But we had a scrimmage on Tuesday night. So, you know, after the show, I went and they uh, went to the scrimmage and it was an intense scrimmage. Like the team we were playing, their fans were going nuts and were just yelling at the ref. Now, I understand they were a different team. They were excited to play our team, but they were just going so crazy. The ref even had to say, hey, guys, this is a scrimmage. Like, <laughs> It was a scrimmage? It was a scrimmage. And it, so it doesn't even count to the record or anything. And it just, it was so intense. And it's like, this is third and fourth graders, guys. Like, let's just relax a little bit. If your son has a bad game, it doesn't mean they're not going to be able to play in college. One bad game in fourth grade. And I feel like that's how every game is treated now, even up to the high school level. If a person has a bad game in their high school game, they feel like their career is over. And I, I don't know if it's the parents putting the pressure on them or what, but 
That's insane. It is insane. And my wife, when she coached basketball, she had a player even say that. She she had a bad game as a freshman. She goes, well, there goes my college scholarship. And it's just like, no, it, it, that, you didn't lose anything because you had one bad game. So I don't know. I think it is the parents, obviously. they. I don't know why we as parents have a problem with this and they're really gonna, you know, not afraid to go after people and go after coaches and refs. Like, I made sure to go out of my way after the tur- my son's tournament on the weekend to the ref. I said, hey, great job today. You know, you deal with a lot. And people are yelling at him the whole game. And it's like, he, he was, like, shocked that I came up and said thank you yeah. to him. And it's just like, it's one of those little things you can do for those refs and makes it probably makes his day. I did that with my eldest when she was playing club volleyball. I always walked to the referee who was the head referee on the net, and I would say, hey, nice job. Even if the referee didn't do a good job. Right. I would say, nice job. And thanks for being here because I think you're – you're really forgetting if you've never been in that position that you're not going to be perfect. And I do think sometimes, like, it's really hard because I remember one time my kid was serving. She hit a ball I thought was in. The line judge called it out. And I really want my kid to have success. And I really wanted her to leave feeling good. And it was all I could do. I had to bite my lip. It was all I can do to be like, no, play the long game here. This is all right. It's okay for the ball to be out if, if it's really it. It doesn't matter, really, in the end. Nobody cares. If I asked her now, she wouldn't even remember it, but I do. And part of it was because as a parent, your hope is, hey, I want her to have a positive experience. But in the end, I think the experiences I leave thinking about is I remember her when she wasn't playing, cheering for her teammates on the bench and having other parents go, gosh, your kid's so upbeat and optimistic and such a energetic kid on the bench, and I'm more proud of her for that. Like, have, keeping a positive attitude when things aren't going well than I am if she makes a great play. And so I think you got to look back at it and you got to ask yourself. And, I, you know, I, uh, I was talking to J.J. Uh, Burden, of course, on the show a couple of days ago, and I, I got to thinking about him today, and I was like, you know what, I have a follow-up question for J.J. And, I, you know, J.J. was 27 years old. He's in the NFL. He's not playing, gets cut three times. He never be, he hadn't yet become J.J. Bird in the wide receiver for the Chiefs that was going to have a nine-year career. And for some reason, he kept coming back. And I, and I was really curious about his youth sports experience. And it turns out J.J. Bird didn't play youth sports. He didn't play in junior high. He didn't play till he's a junior in high school. And so I started asking him today. I, we ended up you know, having another conversation. I said, what was it that happened when you were a kid that gave you the resilience that you used at age 27 when you were cut? If you didn't have that, he said there was tremendous adversity in his own household. He was raised by a single mother. He, she was a welder. He watched her. He got more out of that than anything. He watched his mother work hard and be resilient, and therefore he understood part of success is banging your head against the wall over and over again until, until it finally come, you break through. And I think, you know, Parents, your kids are watching you. Do not be a jackass at a youth sports game. You should not be yelling derogatory things at an official. You should not be yelling at players on the opposing team, especially during a scrimmage. It's ridiculous. You should be supporting your team, supporting your coach, supporting your kid, but allow your kid to work through some of this stuff themselves. Well, you nailed it, John. It's not about the parents, not about the refs, not about the coaches. It's about the kids, right? Like, I, when I watch my son, yeah, I get frustrated when he makes mistakes, and then I try to tell myself, 
he's just third grade. And then after the game, I'll ask him, oh, did you have a fun time in your game? He says, yeah, I love my team. I love my teammates. And then it's like, yeah, you know what? I'm glad I didn't, like, yell at him on the court because he's having fun. Even though he's, you know, if they lose and they and he makes mistakes, at the end of the day, he's having fun with his friends. And I think that's the mo- that, that's the ultimate goal. And so for me, like, I've had to calm myself down, like, because, you know, as me, as a former college basketball player, like, I want him to do what I did out there. And he just can't do it right now because he's only in third grade. I got to tell myself, hey, he's having fun with his friends, man. Let him be. And he will get to his own place. And the ultimate goal for your kid, and you know this, is, you know, when your kid's 27 years old and something adverse happens in his life, you want him to be equipped to deal with it and have the confidence and the resilience to to work through it and and not have that be the first time where they look and go, my mom and dad isn't here to fix this for me like they did all through youth sports. Like, it's okay. Let them struggle. It's good for them. Safely, it's good for them. P.J. Carliasimo coming up, uh, former coach of the Blazers. He's now a broadcaster. He's on the college games this weekend in the state of Oregon. We'll talk to P.J. more on the Super Bowl later in the program. Dana Altman at 4 o'clock, Ducks coach. Dana Altman coming up at 4 o'clock, University of Oregon men's basketball coach. Tomorrow in the show, 324, make an appointment. Scott Lakeham, the athletic director, University of Portland, will be joining us. Tomorrow, 324. I want to catch up with him, find out what's going on at UP, WCC, all of that stuff. Our next guest, you know him, PJ Carlissimo. You know him on TV at ESPN, the NBA and TNT, Fox Sports, Pac-12 Network, head coach of uh, four NBA teams, uh, college coach, man of the world, PJ Carlissimo. He's in the state of Oregon. What are you doing, coach? Hey, John, I've got... uh... Washington State at Oregon State uh, for Pac-12 Network tonight. Actually looking forward. I think it's going to be a good game. Yeah, Washington, Oregon State's different at home. And Washington State, totally they're a different team. Washington State is big. They're just long and big. They've been pounding the last uh, three games. I was talking to Kyle Smith at the shoot-around this morning. I can't believe it. I mean, their numbers, what they've done the last three games in terms of rebounding, offensive boards, second-chance points, and then on top of that, they're averaging ten turnovers, ten point one turnovers a game. I mean, they're hard to beat. They've won six out of seven, and the seventh was an overtime loss. So I mean, they're playing really well. They've put themselves up. I think they were forty-one in the net rating this morning. So long way to go. Obviously, I think the Pac-12 is about halfway through their season, but um, they've put themselves in really good position to, you know, where if they can continue. Uh, at this level or even close to it, um, they're a legit opportunity to get an at-large bid. You've been part of a bunch of teams that played deep in the NCAA tournament, had a Final Four in 89, Big East tournament champion twice, uh, NBA championship team that you were on with the Spurs three times. Do you get a feel as a coach at a juncture of the season that, hey, man, this is really coming together, or how does that feel to be sort of on the inner sanctum? Well, I I think... uh, a, you're always optimistic, probably overly so, um, in terms of your team. You always think your team's a little better than they probably are. But you know for sure when you have a good team, that doesn't sneak up on you. you got a team that's, you know, particularly NBA when you're, you know, halfway through the year or, you know, uh, certainly approaching the All-Star game. Um, college, when you get halfway through your conference schedule, you know that because you, you've handled things. You've probably had an injury or two. And, how to play without a guy, you've had home games, you've had road games, you've 
probably dealt with a slump somewhere along the way and just saw how your team reacted. And, you know, I, I think when you get to a certain point, if your team is good, you know it by then. If they're not, you're still hoping it's going to come together. But uh, when you've got a good one, whether it's NBA or whether it's college, you know. And, and that's all you really – you just want a chance, John, every night. I know that sounds stupid, but, um, you, you know, you've got, you want to see where you control your own destiny. You know, like if we play well, we can win the game. It doesn't matter what the other guys do. Um, and when you have a lesser team, you know the other team's got to cooperate, you know, for you to win. Like you, it doesn't matter. You can go in and play as well as you want. If that other team plays, you know, even reasonably close to their ability, you're probably going to lose the game. Um, whereas when you have a team that's good enough, you feel like, hey, we control our own destiny, even on the road. Now, like, you know, we're going into another really good team's joint. Um, do we have to play very, very well? Yeah, we do. But you, you kind of feel like we can make that happen. And, and I think that Washington State is at that level right now. I, I think Kyle's team really believes that they've shown they can win on the road. I think they're 3-3 three and three in the pack at this point on the road. They can rebound. They can shoot the three a little bit. They've got a couple of very good players that, you know, they're a balanced team. Um, so, you know, I, I th- and it's a big jump. I mean, when you think of the four guys they lost, from last year to be where they are right now. And they took a lot of heat in the preseason. You know, they were, I don't know, something in 0, 11 and 0, 9 and 0, whatever. And everybody said, well, they haven't played a road game. All they're playing is bad teams. But it was a good move. I think he got some confidence into his guys. Uh, and that wasn't enough. Then they had to go out and prove it. And they've been able to do that. So uh, they're legit. I, you know, I think I keep seeing people were saying three. If you look at Joe Lenardi now, if you believe Joe in the bracketology, um, I think the pack's going to end up with uh, with four. Uh, now, again, uh, what happens the rest of the way is going to be really important. If, if they start beating each other and it works out the wrong way, it's not going to happen. But um, I, I think they have a reasonable chance. I think there's five teams that have put themselves in position uh, to you know to to make that run, and it's totally different. I don't know how much time you spend handicapping or uh, picking the pack race, but this it's turned out nothing like. I thought with the exception of Arizona still being, you know, at the top or near the top, um, everybody else, there's teams playing way better than I thought. There's teams that I thought were going to be in the mix that are nowhere. So it's been a, it's really been an interesting year in the Pac-12 so far. Yeah, and Kyle Smith, I mean, he replaced those losses with junior college kid, Division two kid, Big Sky Conference kid, and he's, you know, they're playing lights out. Meanwhile, yeah, you got Oregon. And nobody yeah. thought, and somebody that, was there for two years and beat uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma. So yeah. they didn't. Anybody that says they saw this coming uh, is is lying. Uh, but it, it's uh, they're they're legit. They're not doing it with mirrors. Uh, they're doing it. They're really really good defensively. Uh, they have a nice combination. They shoot. I think they're one or two, but they're, they're no lower than three. It changed a little bit after the two games last night. But they're one, two, or three in field goal percentage and field goal percentage defense which is a, a pretty good combination to have. They're, uh, they real, they don't, really don't have any holes. I'm not saying they're, you know, the team to beat in the Pac-12, but they're legit. They really are. P.J. Carlissimo with us on the call tonight for the Pac-12 Network. Oregon State, meanwhile, um, have you ever been around a team, coached a team, that just for whatever reason played completely different at home on the road? What do you see when you look at Oregon State? I'm I'm baffled because they're an extreme. I mean, we you know we've all had teams that aren't as good on the road as you are at home, but I mean they're beyond that. And and this has not been a problem this year. Now again, this team um, after the Elite Eight, it was a total rebuild that next year. So I mean I you know easy to give Tink a pass for that one to me. 
Last year he played all freshmen. Now they're all freshmen and sophomores. So you can see it a little bit. But, I mean, they have just – when they leave Gill Coliseum, I don't know what happens. Uh, but but they have struggled. Now, they have lost some close games. You know, it's not like they're getting beat by 25 every night out. But they're, they're coming off a really tough trip to the L.A. schools last week. Uh, and they're, they've been not pretty good. They've been very good at home. They won three of their last four. Their loss was an overtime loss also, I think, to Stanford. So, like, you know, they beat Arizona. Like, the, the teams they beat were not the bottom of the league. So, it's a, for whatever reason, they're a very, very different team uh, in Gill. I, I do chalk, you know, chalk a lot of that up to you. Oh, but you got a young team. And they're freshmen and sophomores. But their freshmen played a lot last year. The, the, these guys that are sophomores have a lot of experience. The, the, the current freshman group is getting – um, you know, some, some experience now, too, and I think they're going to be good in the future. Um, you know, just who knows? You, you just can't predict a roster from year to year, and particularly in the case of Wazoo and, and Oregon State, you know, going into a totally new situation next year in the West Coast Conference in terms of basketball. Um, you know, who they're going to be able to recruit, who they're going to be able to keep. Uh, I mean, now it's, it's, it's as big a deal recruiting your own guys and trying to return as many players as you can. And Wayne and uh, Oregon State have always been very good at that. They've gotten guys that feel good about their program, and they stay there, and they get better. And, like, they, they're, they're kind of like the older college, you know, old-time college teams where you had guys and they got better from freshman to sophomore year, and then when they were together for two, three, four years, all of a sudden you saw the results. And, and I think potentially that's what Wayne has right now. Uh, with his group because they're still a very young team compared to, you know, most, most every team in the country. PJ, when you look at that job, you know, you not only have to coach, but you've got to worry about recruiting and then worry about your guys getting in the portal. Um, We're seeing some football coaches run to the NFL and going, I I don't, you know, I'd I'd rather just be in the NFL where I can actually coach. Um, Would that appeal to you to be a coach in college today? NBA, like, you know, where's your mind on that? NBA, yes. College, not as much. And, and the, the reason I say that, and I like, I never really differentiate. Like, you know, my first whatever five or ten years in the NBA, because having coached in college for 23 years, everybody would always ask me, "What's the difference? Which one did you like more?" I, I, I honestly like them both equally. They're different. Um, there's different aspects of both of them that I like. There's aspects that I don't like. Um, right now, I, you know, ESPN's kind to me. In addition to my NBA schedule, they allow me three weeks to go to the NCAA tournament for Westwood One, which is is great. And then on top of that, living in Seattle, I get to do about ten Pac-12 network games. So I get my college fix, and I get to see them. John, almost without exception, and I'm not just talking basketball. Everybody's pulling their hair out. They're just it, they're not the older guys that I'm closer with. I mean, I know a lot of the younger guys who were assistants and whatnot when I was uh, coaching, and and you know I've gotten to meet them. But they're all saying the same thing. Man, this is not what I signed up for. This job is different than it used to be. You have no control. It's so hard, so difficult to coach freshmen. They come in, they want to play a lot, they want to get a lot of shots, or they're going to come in and tell you, hey, coach, I can get so-and-so from uh, this X team. And, and, you know, they all get the word to them. You're not supposed to contact people when they go in the portal. (laughs) But these guys all know. And it's like not just the, the really good ones, which is obvious. Like if you're anything but at the elite level, in a strange way, if your best player like really is playing way better than anybody thought, somebody's going to swoop in and offer him, you know, a better NIL situation 
or a situation where you can go to the tournament or, or go deeper in the tournament. Uh, so it's, I mean, it is really, really tough. And then there's just a lot of schools that don't have the NIL resources that, that other schools have. And, and, and that's hard because the kids know. And even the lying that goes on, like, I'm getting this, I'm getting that, doesn't matter. When you cut through that and you get to, the, you know, the, the absolute bare essentials, there's teams that with just enormously bigger budgets, and, and the players know that, and it, it's, uh, I'll tell you what, it's hard. And it's the same in Florida. Early in the year, the SEC football coaches were complaining about NIL. If the <laughs> SEC football coaches are complaining, uh, you, you know there's, there's something not right. And, it's, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm still close with a lot of people in the Big East. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not a particular conference. Uh, you know, just being around here with the Pac-12, with the WCC, with the Mountain West, you've got different tiers, Big Sky, you know, like it, they're all competitive, but like in a different way, they're all a little bit different. I mean, there's some that hardly deal with the NIL, and there's other guys that the NIL is so important to what they do. And, you know, living in Seattle and seeing what um, UW has gone through uh, in both football and in basketball, I mean, it is uh, – it's a challenge. I, I, I just think there's a lot more people who seem unhappy, maybe a, a tiny bit strong, but just n- not really thrilled with what the job has become. The elements of the job that didn't used to really be major factors are now the most important thing. And you got challenges on your hand now that you didn't use that. You know, it's hard enough to get a group together. People really don't know how challenging it is to get 14 or 15 people on the same page. And, and, you know, being competitive and doing things when you're competing with other people trying to do the same thing. Now with the the transfer and guys being able to leave, and I think, help me out, you probably know, John, Raekwon Battle, who I knew pretty good when he was at UW to start um, and then went to Montana State and now he's at West Virginia. That suit that he won or got to stay or whatever the hell it is, I, unless I'm mistaken, it's like the Wild West right now. Anybody can go anywhere. Now maybe that's going to get – overturned but i mean it is so difficult um when when players just feel you know it, it i don't like you know it's it, it's been uh cloudy the last three days i'm gonna go somewhere else i want to go to a southern <laughs> school i'm gonna go to california right. it's nice yeah i mean it's like come on man guys are coming in to talk to you about meetings i'm like get out of here what what the hell do you want me to do so it's uh <laughs> it, it's honestly it's really it's really difficult uh, I, I think a lot of the coaches at the – I'm saying lower, and I don't mean it in a negative, but I mean, you know, the, the schools that aren't spending a gazillion dollars, the leagues that are one-bid leagues, a lot of them are happier. But they, they have the same issue. The worst thing that can happen is you find this diamond in the rough or you get some guy that just improves dramatically uh, when he's been there for two years. Well, you can kiss him goodbye. I mean, he's gone. He, you know, he's going, he's going somewhere else. It's just a question of where he's going and how much is he going to get or – you know, uh, hey, I want to go to the tournament, coach. We're in a building situation here. It's going to take us two years to get to the tournament, or I, I want a chance to actually win an NCAA tournament. So it's uh, it's tough. Uh, it's still – the product is good. Danny Hurley, I was, you know, lucky enough to coach for two years at the Hall. They last year were absolutely the best team in the tournament. I, I Just by luck, Westwood, I, I had them all uh, – three locations i had him in albany the first two weeks i had him in uh, first week i had him in las vegas for the west regional and then i had him in uh, wherever the heck the final four was last year i think it was in houston yeah. um and they were the best team and they were playing the best and i mean you know barring an injury or something like that they were they were going to win it 
I tell you what, they're really good again. They came in to Seattle uh, in, I think it was in December, uh, and handled Gonzaga. I've watched them a lot. Boy, they're playing well. They're deep. Um, you know, they're athletic. They shoot threes. They got a big man. Boy, it's uh, They're tough again, but, it, I mean, it is wide open. Uh, I, I just think there are so many teams that, have a legit chance, you know, like really, hey, we're good. You know, y'all say that. You put your hand in and we're going to win the whole thing. But, I mean, there's a lot of people that are looking around saying, hey, we, we can beat any of these teams. Anybody can beat anybody. And it's, uh, it's hard to win six in a row, which is what you have to do. Usually, uh, or I'd say almost without exception, nobody, nobody wins six unless they're truly one of the best teams in the country. But I think that pool of teams that are capable of winning is a little bigger this year than it's been in some years. That's interesting. Uh, P.J. Carlissimo with us. 40 years of coaching, now broadcasting, Pac-12 Network. He's got the game tonight, Oregon State, Washington State. I, You know, something we were talking about this the other day on the show, the Dream Team in 92, and Chuck Daly's the head coach. You're an assistant. Coach K's an assistant. Lenny Wilkins with you on that staff. What was that experience in 92 like for you? It was uh, the best summer I've ever had in my life. I mean, it, it, you know, there, there was kind of four aspects to it. Uh, we, 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 we spent about a week in La Jolla in San Diego with the training camp. We played against the young kids, the select team, and uh, uh, that was fun. Uh, getting to know some of the guys on the team that I generally didn't know at that time. I, I, I didn't know Carl. I didn't know John Stockton. Uh, I didn't know Larry Bird. Some of the guys I knew really well from the Big East and from Nike and from college. Um, and then you had the week uh, right in Portland playing in, in, in the Glass House, uh, the Tournament of the Americas. A lot of people forget we were there. Uh, we were there 4th of July. Peter Jacobson opened um, OGC, Oregon Golf Club, 4th of July, 92. Uh, that, that was the year that, that that debuted. We had a great time. You know, I always uh, enjoyed going to Portland. At that point, it was because of my uh, association with Nike and Mark Bryant playing there and uh, the relationship. So it was good to be in Portland. And then uh we went to Monte Carlo for a week to train before we went to Barcelona and then the ultimate was the the Olympics in Barcelona it never that group was just freaky in terms of you had guys at the end of their careers or near it you had guys in their prime and you had a couple guys that were even though they were still really good they were kind of just starting to dominate where they were going to be all NBA players and it was uh they had a lot to prove which people don't remember uh, you know, because it was so long ago. But we had lost in 88. Uh, we, the United States, had lost in Korea, uh, didn't win the gold medal. And it was the first time that we were putting our professional players out there. Uh, and you had three players uh, who had won a gold medal in 84, Michael, uh, Patrick Ewing, and Chris Mullen. You had one player, David Robinson, who had lost uh, in 88, didn't get a gold medal in Seoul. And you had eight guys um, seven of whom, forget Christian, because he would have made the team eventually as a young college guy. Um, seven guys who thought they would never get a chance to play in the Olympics. And people don't realize how meaningful it was to, to a, an Irvin Johnson, to a uh, Larry Bird. You know, to these guys, you had guys like Stock and uh, Charles Barkley who were reputed to be, you know, among the last cuts in 84 when, when Bobby Knight picked his team. So you had all these dynamics coming together. And that team just, like, they took it very seriously. And, and you know, they just they wanted to send a message. And they play – if you go back and watch the tapes, you'll be surprised at how well they defended, how well they passed the ball, like how, how well they played basketball. We've had other teams since then that sometimes are 
complacent or overconfident or you know don't don't always play the right way. That team it was it was amazing and to be a you know a small part of it to to work with Chuck was uh, it was it was amazing. Uh, they'll, they'll you know hard for me to imagine uh, any, any kind of basketball experience that ever comes close to that summer. Yeah, and I can't, I wonder about it because I you know you see like in the Olympics like the trainer will be working you know for an Olympic team with Usain Bolt or Michael Phelps and our coach yep. that gets to work with Phelps and you go gosh what would that what must that be like to work with the best in the world and you I mean that team the best and as a coach you ha- you have players who not only are capable but understand how to play the game know how to play together and for some reason play set their personal stuff aside and play unselfishly they they loved it i mean the dynamics that went into that and you know everybody saw chuck chuck didn't do a good job he did a great job i mean a lot of pe- could a lot of people have coached that team of course i mean it was the best best basketball team ever put together but i, I think chuck really struck a nice chord with them and they they knew you know it did they enjoy it yeah they enjoyed it they loved playing together but it was also uh a little bit of a, a message sent, a little bit of an opportunity. Hey, look around this locker room. Look who you're going to play with uh, for two months. Those guys enjoyed it. They really enjoyed playing with each other. They enjoyed uh, particularly the eight guys who had never been on an Olympic team. They enjoyed it. It's so different when you play and it says USA on the front of your jersey or on your shirt. Uh, it, it really is. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, that thing all came to a, a culmination. But, you know, when they, when they played uh, – the 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 band Star Spangled Banner in Barcelona it it was incredible and it was a uh, it, it was just an enjoyable summer and the friendships that were me you know, I spent a lot of time with those guys the friendship I tell you one of the funniest ones they knew each other obviously from playing against each other but uh, and I never knew why they called it Harry but it was Harry and Larry was Larry Bird and Patrick Ewing were like inseparable hmm. like if you <laughs> went into the lunch you know lunch at the hotel and you said those two would always be together we we put T-shirts on. That were you know I had the pictures of the two of them and it was Harry and Larry's show, uh, uh, but I mean there, was, there were great friendships made and the families were there in Europe in 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 Monte Carlo and Barcelona they were not there in um, San Diego and you know very few came to to Portland they weren't living with us like they were but the experience over there you got to know so you know so many of these guys that were young kids I mean Patrick's daughter Randy Ewing works for the NBA now John Stockton's kids I saw all of them. You know, playing later, playing basketball, playing football, and these friendships are are still there. It was really a, a tremendous experience. Uh, we we were so so fortunate to to be a you know a small part of that. All right, PJ Carlissimo, who'll be on the broadcast tonight, Pac-12 Network, Oregon State, Washington State. PJ, thank you for joining us. I'd love to get you back on later in the season kind of get a feel for the tournament right before maybe it comes out and uh, the bracket for comes sure, out. John, would, would, would love to, and uh, I, I need to get to Portland, man. I'm not getting there enough anymore. So come on, um, say hello to Chauncey, and I hope I, I hope I get a chance to get down there. All right, PJ, thank you. There's PJ Carlissimo coming up at four o'clock. We got Dana Altman. I'm going to ask him about his future in Eugene. Ducks are playing tonight, seven o'clock against Washington at Matthew Knight Arena. Big game for Oregon. They've got to win these home games this weekend. They're going to get two big opportunities against Washington and Washington State. The Washington game tonight at 7, Washington State 2 o'clock on Saturday. you got the BFT. Our big splash is coming up next. I rather enjoyed the, that interview with P.J. Carlissimo. Last year at the Pac-12 tournament, uh, my seat on press row was right beside P.J. 
And I, so I got a chance to sit with him during several games and just kind of pick his brain on everything that was going on on the court and everything was happening with the Pac-12, all that stuff. It's a great resource, wonderful resource with so much to offer. And I thought it was really interesting to hear his take on sort of coaching and coaching in college, coaching in the NBA and the friends that he has that are still out there coaching. Uh, Dana Altman is coming up top of the hour. He'll uh, talk to us about the University of Oregon program. They're hosting Washington tonight at 7 o'clock. If you are interested in going to that game at Matthew Knight Arena, I'm sure Dana Altman would love to see you there. Love a little bit more energy in that building. Saturday at 2 o'clock, the Ducks will host Washington State in a big one. But Oregon-Washington tonight at Matthew Knight Arena. That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. The one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, the Kansas City Chiefs are already talking about next season. General Manager Brett Veach was talking in Nevada today uh, in front of the Super Bowl on Sunday about re-signing defensive tackle Chris Jones, cornerback Legarius Sneed, also another offseason priority, getting both those players under contracts. Um, it's amazing as they're preparing for the Super Bowl against the 49ers that they have to already be thinking about, okay, we gotta we got to focus on next year, not this game. That's the job of the general manager. He's also got a head coach in Andy Reid. That is who will turn 66 years old next month in his 25th season as a head coach uh, in the NFL. Andy Reid retiring anytime soon? Uh, the Chiefs don't think so, and those close to Reid say he's not going to retire anytime soon. It'll be the Chiefs and Niners in the Super Bowl on Sunday. Uh, I'll ask Dana Altman that question coming up. 65-year-old Dana Altman, watching a lot of college coaches throw in the keys, say they're not interested in being part of the NIL and the transfer portal era of college athletics. Does Dana Altman have an appetite for that still? Oregon Ducks coach coming up. He's next. On the bright side, the Pac-12 conference is wide open. I think uh, Oregon, along with Washington State, Arizona, UCLA, Colorado, maybe some others, all have a chance. Um, you know, I think the conference tournament's going to be outstanding. Dana Altman, Oregon basketball coach, joining us. Uh, for those of you who are interested tonight, Oregon's got Washington. they got Washington, Washington State this week. But Washington tonight, 7 o'clock tip-off at Matthew Knight Arena. Be a fun game. Coach, uh, give us an idea. How do, you know? I mentioned it as being wide open. What do you see in the Pac-12? Well, I think it is. Uh, we're a game back. Uh, you know, Washington State's right there. Uh, Colorado, Utah. Um, and then you mentioned UCLA, who's, who's playing really, really well. So, um, yeah, it's it's a tight race. And, you know, Arizona is the most talented team of the group. But, uh, you know, on the road, they've been you know, a little bit uh, vulnerable to some teams. But they got us, you know, and that was that was a big loss for us that day. But we'll have our shot down there. But we've got to take care of business, John. We've got to take care of business tonight against Washington. It was a one-possession game in Seattle. And, uh we're going to have to play awfully well. They're very talented, and they got five grad students. They're the whole oldest team in the league, 
And so we're going to have to do a great job tonight. Yeah, give me. let's speak about that for a minute because it used to be I would hear coaches talk about, hey, I want to get longer, we need to get bigger, and, and now I'm hearing coaches say we need to get older, and, of course, with the portal you can. But you're, you're going to lean heavily, I, I think, down the stretch here on Jackson, Shellstead, and, and Kwame, and you've got some young guys that are talented. And, you know, are, are they ready to grow up? Well, they have to. Uh, you know, Jackson's done a great job. You know, but he's a freshman, and the bigger physical guards have have hurt him a little bit. He's learning to adjust and and play against the bigger, you know, twenty two, twenty three year old guards that are are just bigger and more physical. And uh, it's been an adjustment for him, and but he's doing a better job with it now. And you know, I, I thought he played okay at USC. I thought he played okay at UCLA, and they both tried to beat him up a little bit, and and he hung in there pretty good. Um, but he's got to play well for us. Uh, Keyshawn had a had an injury, so we're a little short-handed there at the point. And so Jackson's performance down the stretch is going to be, you know, really important to our success. And Kwame uh, been a little up and down, like most freshmen. Again, the physicality of the game. Uh, you know, he's trying to play inside, and the physicality of the game has affected him some, but. Uh, he's very talented, like you said. He's he's really skilled, can really pass it. And as he gets bigger and stronger, you know, he's really going to have a, a big effect on the game in, in future years. I thought, you know, I was at the Arizona game at home, and I thought there, there was a good crowd. There was some electricity in the building. You obviously, you know, you suffered a, a, a an injury that, that cost you down the stretch, and it was probably a disappointing outcome. But I, I kind of I liked the energy. It felt like there was good energy there. What does that mean to you when you're in the building? You know, you've got Washington tonight, Washington State on Saturday at 2 o'clock. Um, you know, to have that crowd show up, Coach. John, it means a lot to the players. Um, you know, they they get excited. We were, <laughs> It was our best crowd by far, and our guys probably got a little too excited. Heck, we got out of the block so slow, everybody was, you know, pumped up. and uh, But... It, it, it means a lot to the guys, and uh, it means a lot to all our teams. You know, when you go to Autzen Stadium and it's full, you know, that's why they're tough at Autzen. You know, and we've had a good record at home. You know, we've we've done all right here, and college basketball is a home court sport. You see that every night, and, you know, the crowd probably has more effect on college basketball than any other sport, and people are right there. The emotion of the game, the intensity of the game. Uh, you know, I just don't know of a sport where it affects uh, the game more than uh, college basketball. Yeah, it was interesting that game, that Arizona game, after the game, before the news conference, you're out on the court. There's some little kids that are playing. I don't know if it was one of your grandchildren or whatnot that was on the court, and the ball kind of rolled to your feet. You kind of had a smile. I mean, there's an innocence and there's a beauty to this game, right? The, at the core of basketball, and forget all the portal and NIL. We've talked about that, but when this game is played right, how fun is it for you to coach it? You know, I love practice. Um, I love going to practice every day. Uh, the games are painful sometimes, but uh, practice is is great. And you know, we. We had uh, some some kids in from the children's hospital this last week, and to see the guys, the look on their face, you know, working with those kids, and that, uh, you know, it is, you know, that's 
seeing little kids excited about watching. And I got a two-year-old grandson, and he thinks Dante's the greatest. He walks around with his jersey on, and I'm Dante. And uh, <laughs> so it it's it's great to see. And you know, I coached junior college ball for a long time, and and loved that. And um, you know, I've been fortunate to coach at really good places. And but to watch little kids get excited and to have high school kids come in and watch us practice and, and the camps in the summer, John, it's it's good to see young people still loving ball and uh and playing, you know, for for the love of the game. You know, we we kinda have become a little more commercialized in, in college sports now. But guys still play because they love the game. And they still get in gym extra because they love the game. And uh that's still why you you coach because you like to see guys loving this particular game. In my case, it's basketball, but football. I'm watching the volleyball girls out here working now uh, with Jimmy Rad, and you know our volleyball team works so hard. And you know, so no matter what the sport, just seeing the passion and the love for the game. You know, I, I go back. You know, Southeast Community College, 1976 to 1978. You get your start there, but I got to think you fell in love with basketball before that. I'm a, I was a community college kid myself, and so I, you know, I understand that level and the opportunity and the hunger and the dogs that are there at that level that are just trying to make it. But where did you fall in love with the game? What was your first exposure to basketball? Oh man, I begged my dad to build a court in our backyard back in my hometown and uh, it was the most used uh, basketball court uh, in the country I think we had kids all over the neighborhood and put a light up and so we played all night and in the summer you know we'd play and sweat our tails off and in the winter you know the ball would freeze and we'd have one on the radiator warming up so we could keep playing and uh so I've, I've always really enjoyed the game. I had a great high school coach, John, and that goes back. You know, the, the guys that really took a great job were the junior college or the junior high coaches and the high school coaches. You know, that's that's where the love of the game. You know, if you're going to love the game, and I had a great high school coach, Dave Oman, and I wasn't any good, but he worked with me all the time. And, uh, and then I walked on into junior college. I was a really bad player, but I just loved the game and wanted to play. And John, do you know how bad you have to be to walk on into junior college? I mean, you know, it's one thing to walk on at the University of Oregon or, you know, a great school, but I walked on into junior college and, um, you know, just because I loved the game and I wanted to play. And uh, so, you know, I, I started young. I, I loved the game and, and always have and wasn't planning on going into coaching, but uh, just couldn't see myself leaving the gym at, at uh, three o'clock every day, so uh, got a GA's job, and and uh, fortunately, uh, you know, my career, I've got really good players, so we've had an opportunity to win a few games. Is there it, because you were that kid who walked on at a community college? Do you have a soft spot or an, an affection for kids that are walk-ons in your program, or maybe they're three-star kids that you know they're not one and dones? Do you have? Do you gravitate more to those kids and identify with them more? Oh, I, I, I love walk-ons. We got Gabe Reichel, who, who's from, you know, Portland area, and he loves the game. I mean, counting degree, and he's already graduated, but, I mean, he's at practice. He knows his count report 
as good or better than anybody on our team. James Cooper had been with us, you know, from South Carolina, walked on. And so, yeah, I, I got a soft spot for those guys um, that are committed to our program. And, you know, at, at Creighton, when I was there for 16 years, we had a lot of those guys that developed. We had a lot of five-year guys. Um, but the game's changed, you know. It's uh, not many guys want to stick around for five years, you know. And I often wonder, you know, how it would have been for, you know, guys like Chris Boucher, who, you know, junior college in four years, and, you know, Chris Duarte, uh, four years, Peyton, four years. Uh, Joe Young was a five-year guy. You know, you, you just start wondering, um, you know, the change today, would have those guys had, uh, you know, the perseverance to stay with it and, you know, go through the ups and downs? You know, you just don't know. And uh, so you wonder, you know, what kind of effect, you know, guys changing schools all the time, you know, will have on guys developing and, and fighting through some adversity. Uh, so it's, it's just an interesting time. It's different. You know, I don't think it's bad. I think it's really good that players should get money. Um, I think that's been a long time coming. But uh, it just changes everything. And uh, we'll have to see the, the ups and downs and the positives and the negatives of, of guys jumping around a lot. You, uh, you're 65. You've got plenty of uh, runway on your contract. But, you know, I've had people ask me, you know, but why doesn't Dana just go coach college, junior college kids where he can just teach and coach? Why does he need all of this? And do you have a sense of how much longer you want to do it, or how do you evaluate that? You know, I, as long as I feel like I'm the best guy for the job, I'll stay with it. Um, you know, if, if the people here ever want to make a change, I won't fight them. You know, I, I want to be where people are all in. And, um, you know, Rob's been great. The administration's been great. Mr. Knight, Mr. Kilkenny, uh, people that our program really depend on um, have been great. Um, but I you know, I want to be here as long as they want me here. And, you know, we've, we've got to do a better job, though, John. You know, and I'll be the first one to admit it. You know, NIT is not our goal. And, and you can say, well, you've had injuries. You know, we've, we've got plenty of excuses, but we can't use them. You know, we just we got to get it done. And um, so, you know, I've I've got to do a better job. My staff, you know, we we just got to be better. And uh, so again, we we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, uh, as all college coaches do. You know, I I know Wayne down at Oregon State, man, he he wants to win. Uh, guys in the league, Mick, those guys, they're all competitors. And so, you know, it's it's a job where you got to put a little time in and got to get lucky. You know, you got to have really good guys that are all about the team, and got to keep them healthy, and and they got to get along. Got to get a little lucky, but uh, hopefully we can finish strong here down the stretch. We got a great opportunity tonight against Washington, Washington State on Saturday. Uh, we got Colorado and Utah coming in here. We got to go to Arizona. Got to go to the Bay Area, John, which has always been a tough road trip for us. But uh, you know, we've we've got our shot. You know, we just we got to be tough enough to take care of it. Washington tonight, 7 o'clock, Matthew Knight Arena. Washington State, Saturday, 2 o'clock. Um, you know, I brought my wife and kids to that Arizona game. We got tickets for them. They were sitting. There's not a bad seat in the house. Like, it is it is a really nice arena because I had not 
really seen it through the eyes of a fan. It's a really good experience. Great place to watch college basketball. Tonight, Washington. Saturday, Washington State. Uh, Dana Altman, good luck to you down the stretch. You're a game out of first place. Uh, a lot can change in a week. No, got to have a good week here. Got to take care of business at home, and uh, we got to keep getting better. And it's a lot of season left, and, and we got to take care of business. And hopefully, you know, the guys are all in. It's, it's a good group. I like working with them, and so hopefully we can make it happen. Thanks, Coach. Appreciate you joining us. Yep. Dana Altman, University of Oregon men's basketball coach. They are 7-4 and four in conference play. They're sitting a game out of first place, trailing Arizona. Top four teams in the Pac-12 standings get a first-round bye in the conference tournament coming up in Las Vegas. That is going to be a free-for-all. Uh, we're going to talk Super Bowl and Super Bowl and more Super Bowl. All that ahead right here on the Bald Face Truth. Before we move on to the Super Bowl, um, you know, Stephen, I heard from Dana Altman there. I heard a coach who who might uh, who might be coaching his last season. I, I don't want to say it. I don't want to speak for him. I mean, he he said, um, you know, he talks about thinking and feeling like he's got the energy, and you know, I'll coach as long as they'll have me. Yeah, but if they want me gone. But I also am looking at a 65-year-old guy. I just I think so much of whether or not Dana Altman comes back has to do with the fact that that um, you know has to do with whether or not he has fun in the next month. This month is huge for his career trajectory, no doubt. And it's weird because I was talking to Jude about this. Like, remember when Jonathan Smith came on and it sounded like you know he was going to be out at Oregon State. We all kind of took back and were like, that was kind of weird. Like it was a weird thing to say and how he said it. Yes, and it was the same. I got the same vibes from Dana Altman right there. Like, you know what? I I don't know if coaching in college basketball and this in the world and the era that we are. I don't know if it's for me. He, he talks about how he loves walk-ons, how he just loves coaching the game. Like, he would love to maybe just coach like a small high school team because it's all about basketball. It's all about improvement. I don't know if he's all about you know coaching on this level anymore. And he's done it everywhere he's been. He's been so successful in his career. But I'm with you. It sounded like, you can't say it for him, but it sounded like he's almost had enough of the NIL and the transfer portal world. It was really, right. really interesting to hear. Let's let's compare Jonathan Smith on this show on November 21st to Dana Altman on this show on February the 8th. Here's Jonathan Smith. Is, does that mean that you have not had contact with those schools or your agent hasn't? Or you know, people were worried. They keep asking me, is he leaving? Is he yeah. leaving? I said, it's not his style. Yeah. Well, I'm not trying to be sarcastic here. It's like yeah. I've got an agent that's got a job. He best be finding out what, what is out there and, and people calling him, right? I mean, that's how that works. I can tell you from his, his side, he best be working just because I'm paying him so much, right? They get a percentage <laughs> of I'm making him a couple million bucks. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. so I'm not trying to be sarcastic. So, right. And I think – any coach, they're aware of what's potentially out there through if their if their agents doing their job. And again, I'm not trying to dodge the question or anything, but I'm also trying to be truthful here yeah. of how this thing works. All right. He was truthful, and I remember the conversation that we had immediately in the aftermath of that was, you know, uh, he's gone. Like, yeah, like looking <laughs> you know, back I'm and like, hearing that again, it's like, oh yeah, he was gone. At, like he was already gone at that moment. He and he knew it. And he, he didn't even avoid it. He he kind of admitted it on the show. Like, yeah, I'm out of here. Here's Dana Altman today when I ask him uh, how much longer he plans to be at Oregon. You know, I uh, as long as I feel like I'm the best guy for the job, I'll stay with it. Um, you know, if 
if the people here ever want to make a change, I won't fight them. You know, I, I want to be where people are all in. And, um, you know, Rob's been great. The administration's been great. Mr. Knight, Mr. Kilkenny, uh, people that our program really depend on um, have been great. Um, but I, you know, I want to be here as long as they want me here. And, you know, we've, we've got to do a better job, though, John. You know, and I'll be the first one to admit it. You know, NIT is not our goal. And, and you can say, well, you've had injuries. You know, we've, we've got plenty of excuses, but we can't use them. You know, we just we've got to get it done. And um, so, you know, I've, I've got to do a better job, my staff. You know, we've we just got to be better. Uh, I still think if he has a good finish to this season, there's a shot Dana Altman sticks around, fulfills, you know, another year of his contract. But I think if it's more misery like it was the last two years, NIT ending at the end of the season last year, two years ago, I think he did not like his team. I, I think, you know, I think if he were, we put a lie detector test on Dana Altman and we said, did you hate your team? He, and he lied and said, well, well, I, I really enjoyed that team. It'd be like, wah, 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 you know, it'd be going crazy. FBI would be like, no, nope. <laughs> he hated his team. I just don't think he liked the locker room, didn't like the team. Now he's got a team that's better, but. He's got to figure out now how what he can get out of Jackson Shellstead as a freshman in Folly Dante uh, Dante in his last year and you know is it enough to be a top 4 seed is it enough to be one of those four teams three four teams that get to the tournament uh, to me John it, he answered the question the first 2 seconds with that gasp he's like, uh, like he just I think he like that sound to me is like yeah I don't I'm done like I don't I don't like this I don't like this type of air that we're in right now and may, maybe I just me looking too much into it and assuming things but he had to think about it and he really groaned like man like yeah I I'm, I'm over this so I don't know it'll be interesting to see what he does because he's been such a successful coach but it's so different nowadays and, and it's, it's a different game it's, it's a different, different job it's a different game and so I don't know if he's ready for that to go keep going forward because it takes a lot out of you it's a 365 uh, day a year job now let's play some punch it audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Russ Tucker went on 95.7 FM, The Score, with, and he said... He would like the 49ers. In fact, they'd be more likable if they stopped complaining. Ross Tucker complaining about the complaining. Punch it. The Niners could be a really likable team if they would just stop complaining all the time. About what? About everything. <laughs> Give us Get, an example. Okay. Well, uh, the field, the practice la, no, field. No, no, no. Last week, last week, well, first of all, all you heard from any Niner all offseason, every Niner player or fan was the only reason why they lost to the Eagles was because, was because both quarterbacks get hurt. My recommendation would be to not let your quarterbacks get hurt, okay? <laughs> not let the defense kill your quarterbacks. Then, and they talk about all offseason, okay? Then, next thing we have, last week, they asked Bosa his impression of uh, the Chiefs offensive line. He's like, they hold a lot. Yeah. Then they asked Jed York what he remembered from the Super Bowl four years ago. I remember Nick Bosa being held on third and 15. They're uh, always whining uh, or complaining about something. Now this week, what do we have? The practice field isn't good. Right. It's the Super Bowl. You're barely practicing anyway. They're doing like a walkthrough. <laughs> hey, give me a break. And then today, now they had the alarm pulled. 
You got you got Sonny. That yes, happens every You guys see my post at Ross Grandpa. Right. I said, well, at least now, if if the Niners lose, now we know why. It changes everything. The Thursday alarm pull that changes everything. Well, I mean, they, they, at least they have their built-in excuse. I would like to call Russ Tucker's attention to Patrick Mahomes uh, in the uh, in the wake of a loss and a penalty called uh, uh, against the Buffalo Bills in a football game in the regular season. No, I mean, that, the thing is, I'd rather let, let us play, man. Like, let us play the game. And then whatever happens, happens. Like, the whole throwing the flag and deciding the game one or another, um, that, that, that's what hurts me. That's why, like, last week I didn't say anything because it's, it's letting us play, man. Let us, let us go out there and win the game. And I said I'd rather them let us play and go out there and – and see who wins. I mean, that's what you want as a competitor is you, you practice all week to go out there and try to win. And uh, you want it to be about the, your team and that team and see what happens. No disrespect to Josh Allen, but let me disrespect Josh Allen by belly aching about the officiating. Look, I think, I think all players complain. I think the 49ers are trying to create the narrative or cast the narrative, at least internally, that they are not the favorites, that they have been dissed by the NFL with the practice field. I think... Uh, you know, Nick Bosa's trying to call the attention of the Chiefs potentially holding to the officials more than anything. And I think too, when you look out, um, when you look out at this officiating crew that's going to have the game for the Super Bowl, um, you know, the regular this crew typically averaged in the regular season the fewest or close to the fewest flags per game. The, the crew that we're going to have on this game averaged 13.4 flags per game. Seventh fewest in the NBA, according to ESPN stats and information. So I think Bosa's trying to call attention to the fact that, like, hey, he don't want to be held hard enough to catch Patrick Mahomes. But it's Super Bowl week, and Ross Tucker has the platform. Ed McCaffrey, father of Christian McCaffrey, talking about being a dad watching his son compete for a championship. Punch it. You're right. There's nothing I can do. And I ha- we have four boys. Lisa and I have four boys. We've watched thousands of their games over the years. And in the beginning, you get overly nervous. And at some point, you might get so nervous that you lose the fun of mm-hmm. being a parent. And, a- and you're not really helping them if-, if you're nervous. So we try to be positive, have good energy, appreciate where we are, yeah. and just be there to love them and support them. But yeah. you're right. There's nothing we can do. Nothing so, you yeah. Can do. yeah. Parenting 101 from Ed McCaffrey. Christian McCaffrey comes into this game as the key, I think, for the 49ers on the offensive side of the ball. Everybody talking about Brock Purdy. You have to run the football. If the 49ers can run the ball, it opens everything else up. It's what they do first. They remind me a lot of Oregon State in that way. I think Oregon State runs a lot of the 49ers stuff, if you're an Oregon State fan. Uh, We had Jack Coletto on the show this last season. He talked uh, about seeing... Sort of the, uh, the you know the the film over the years of the 49ers plays that they would study under Jonathan Smith. That'll now be a, a Michigan State thing. Big game. Chad Ochocinco says he wants the Chiefs to win. Patrick Mahomes fan. Punch it. I would love to see the dynasty talk continue with the Chiefs. So okay. I would like Patrick Mahomes to do what he's always done. He had, he doesn't have to do anything extra. He's already dynamic in his own right. But I would love for them to play Kadarius Tony to take some of the pressure off him and add another component to that to them for them offensively. Uh, you I think he could catch? Sorry, real quick. You think he could catch Tom? Yes. Oh yeah. Really? Absolutely. But not the ring count. Yeah, absolutely. I think he got Is a chance. Two? 
Well, it's a big one for Mahomes if he's going to catch him. I mean, we all know how fleeting Super Bowl opportunities are. But, you know, it's a 12-5 and 49ers team against an 11-6 Chiefs team. These are both two really good teams, two really good quarterbacks. Joe Montana, another good quarterback, talking about the advice he would give to Brock Purdy. Listen to this. Punch it. Don't do anything different than you've been doing. I mean, I think I like what he's been doing. He, he has found a way to understand what that offense is about, and the people around him can only make him better. You know, his job is to find a way to get the ball to those guys. I mean, that's typically how Bill's offense worked when we had Jerry and John Taylor. I mean, those guys could – John Taylor goes twice over 90-plus in the Ram game. I threw two seven-yard passes on a slant. <laughs> but in the books, yeah. I got 190 yards yeah. of passing and two touchdowns. Yes. <laughs> Not a bad thing if you're Golden Joe Montana. System guy who had all the poise, made all the right throws. Did he have the strongest arm? Nope. Did he win? Yes. One big. Will there be comparisons between Brock Purdy and Joe Montana if Brock Purdy can win the Super Bowl? Uh, look out for that more more so than the comparisons between Tom Brady and Patrick Mahomes should Mahomes win. Do you think Brock Purdy can only lose the Super Bowl and not win the Super Bowl? No, I think he can win. I think I I think there's a lot at stake for Brock Purdy. I think if he loses the game, it's just going to reinforce sort of the same narrative that came out of the 49ers' last loss in the Super Bowl with Jimmy Garoppolo there. And I think it's important to Purdy to win. I, I do think he elevates, he wins becomes a building block for him. Uh, no matter what anybody says, I think you know he gets a Super Bowl appearance. I, I, I shudder to think about what the narrative would have been on Joe Montana, really, literally, with a team that included you know, Jerry Rice and John Taylor. You know, If he doesn't go to the Super Bowl in 1982 in Pontiac, Michigan, Super Bowl 16, and win with Freddie Solomon and Earl Cooper, does is this the narrative on Montana's career? Like, oh, he had great teams around him. He was in Bill Walsh's offense. Walsh was a genius. Like, I think, I think there's too much made of that. I think you win a Super Bowl, you win a Super Bowl. But Patrick Mahomes is a amazing obstacle that is in the way of the 49ers. and that has nothing to do with Brock Purdy. It has more to do with. The 49ers defense. So there's no chance if Brock Purdy loses and looks bad that going into next season, there's questions on if he's the guy for the 49ers. Like he's, no, I mean, he's no, man. I think there is. I, you, but you asked me, can he only lose? Like, I think if he wins the game, he does, you know, he wins big right. time. You think you if know? he loses, there's a chance, like, there's, there's talk, like, Brock Purdy can't be the guy for the 49ers? No. no, because I think he's done some things already that Garoppolo did not. And I, I think if they lose this game, it's going to be more about. What was there a breakdown on defense? Did they give up thirty points to Patrick Mahomes? And you know, and you know, is it a defensive issue? This team's getting expensive already. That's part of the problem for the Forty ers Is the blessing of Brock Purdy is that he, you know, he's making less than a million dollars. But the curse is the rest of this team, led by Nick Bosa, uh, is getting expensive. You know, and I was looking at the salaries of the of the Forty ers teams like it's. It costs you money to win. And when you start looking at the 49ers payroll and you, you start to see like Debo Samuel and Nick Bosa and uh, Trent Williams, uh, offensive tackle, like it takes you a long time to get to Brock Purdy. But I, I don't think he's part of the problem. I think he allows them right now with his contract to spend on other positions.
But it just depends. Like, you know, is it a performance like he had on Christmas Day against the Ravens? Then, yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of talk. But I don't first, I don't see that for him in this game. I think the Niners will run the ball. I think it's going to be a really close game. I think it's a one-score game. So it just comes down to, can the defense stop Patrick Mahomes enough times? Pivoting to the NBA, Patrick Beverly traded to the Bucks. He wants to win a championship. Punch it. Hey, so who else on the team? Uh, that you quit? No, 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 no. It's Dang, Giannis. No, I got to get my relationship right with Dang. <laughs> yeah, I get my relationship right with Dang. Man, time with a championship. <laughs> Patrick Beverly, who has a beef with Damian Lillard, headed to Milwaukee. Do you find this the most interesting Move of the deadline. Um, I don't, but it is an interesting one because the Bucks do need a perimeter defender. It, Beverly and Dame goes back a while, John, like before even the bubble. The bubble really like solidified it when he was laughing at Dame after Dame missed two clutch free throws. Remember, Beverly was on the sideline laughing at him because the Blazers ended up losing the game. And then there was some beef on, I believe, Instagram, you know, talking about one, two, three Cancun and there, there's been some back and forth between those two. They definitely don't like each other. So I want to see how they do uh, get along with one another. I, that was pretty funny that Beverly has, you know, at least Beverly's the bigger man right now, John. He says he's. I got to fix it with Dame. So we'll see. Well, see if Dame is uh, receptive to that or not. Who is? What's the biggest deadline move that you saw? I think it was uh, it was Dorian Finney-Smith to the Suns. I, I think the Suns are a true contender now. They needed a guy on defense that doesn't worry about. Or sorry, it was Royce O'Neal, not Dorian Fisher. Royce O'Neal. Um, they needed a guy who who played defense, and he that's what he does. He's a perimeter defender, doesn't need the basketball, but he can also hit a jump shot when he has to. And it's a three-point jump shot league. He's going to be able to fit in with that lineup. And you got Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal. I think it's huge for the Phoenix Suns to get a guy that plays defense and doesn't have to get the basketball because they already have guys that can score. They need the guys that can defend. So I think that does actually elevate the Suns into the top tier in the NBA. Nobody played with more tempo than the Oregon Ducks under Chip Kelly. Chip Kelly interviewing for multiple offensive coordinator jobs. Does he, is he not happy at UCLA? Apparently not happy in college football. Nick Aliotti joins Seattle Sports. He was asked, would Chip Kelly's offense work in the NFL? Punch it. Chip is very, very innovative. He's a smart guy, and he stays with the time. So if he... So gets that job in the NFL. Uh, he'll know what he has to do to tweak to, to make it be NFL ready. But the thing about Chip, when we were at Oregon, I cannot even explain to you how fast we went because we would barely be getting back to the line of scrimmage and the next play would be snapped. And we did that over and over and over to where our tempo, and I really mean this, I don't think there was any any faster Temple offense than what we did at Oregon. Chip Kelly, smart coach. I think the bigger takeaway from Chip Kelly interviewing for jobs is not about where he ends up, but about like what must be going on at UCLA. Is he that unhappy at UCLA? I did not get that impression in conversations with him or conversations with officials at UCLA who – I think we have been concerned in prior years about you know his performance on on the field and not. But doesn't the timing say everything about his his 
his happiness at UCLA. If he leaves UCLA at this point, like after all the signing periods, transfer window, oh, yeah. like that is a big fu to UCLA, isn't it? Yeah, it is, and. Yeah, it leaves them in a bind. Martin Jarman, the athletic director there, I know he has showed up to team workouts and kind of walked through the workout area to kind of give his guys a vote of confidence, like, hey, you're not alone, I'm here with you, and then, you know, but chips around too. It's just going to be a weird year, what, you know, no matter what happens. A little bit of a controversy in college football. Kirk Herbstreet, you know him from ESPN, apparently reached out to Dominic Raiola, who is the father of Dylan Raiola, who committed to Nebraska after he committed to Georgia. It's a report that has been circulating, and certainly Dominic Raiola talking about Herbstreet's involvement. He says Herbie encouraged Dylan to go to Nebraska to make the flip. Punch it. Bring up one guy's name. His name's Kirk Herbstreet. When he he saw the smoke, uh, about Dylan entertaining Nebraska, he was like, called me. He said, dude, is this true? He got to do it. You know, he got to do it. He, he, his affinity for Nebraska, uh, for a guy like that to tell me and to, you know, get behind me. Like I knew, I knew he needed to do it, but I wasn't going to sit here and say, you need to go change that place or be a part of the change of that place. Um, so when Kirk told me that, you know, I was like, man, you know, this is, I've had people reach out, other coaches reach out, reach out to me and say, look, the place is special. Coach Rule is a special leader. Look, I think it's really, um, if true, inappropriate for Kirk Herbstreit to be steering a recruit to one school or another school. It's a boundary violation. He shouldn't be involved in this. If I had high school athletes or college athletes ask me, how do you think I would fit at this school? What is it like at that school? Yes. Have I ever proactively reached out to a recruit and said, "Man, if that if this is true, your guys got to go. You got to go, dude." No, Herb Street's in a little bit of trouble, and I think people are already kind of turned off by the act in general. You know, he's got his dog at the games. He's you know he's sparring with the Florida State fans. Not a good look. Now he's involved in this thing. Uh, Stephen, what do you make of it? Yeah, I don't like any of it. I don't like the fact that, you know, Dominic even said Kirk reached out to me. Like, Kirk went out of his way to call him and say, yeah, Dylan needs to go to Nebraska. Like, that, it, I don't know, man. We all, I always, I hate people that say things are rigs and there's conspiracies. But, man, when things like this happen, sometimes it seems like it is a little rigged, right? Like, ESPN or Kirk Herbstreit have some type of agenda. We already know that ESPN has an agenda with certain conferences. The Pac-12 always got shut out. They got the worst cameras than everybody else. Now we're going to have Kirk Herbstreit in the, in the recruiting battles. I don't know, man. I, I don't like it. I don't like the whole dog thing all the time. Now he's trying to be like an everyman. Yeah, you're on private jets, bro. You're, you're not just like me and you. You're, you're way above me. Now you're bringing your dog. I don't know. He's rubbing me the wrong way a lot this season just with all the conference realignment stuff. So I'm with you on this, on this one a lot, John. I, I'm really getting tired of Kirk, man. I, I want him to change a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's it, it's a hard spot for him to be in. I'm going to be honest here. Like, it's a hard spot position for him to be in. He's not going to make everybody happy. Not everyone's going to like him just by virtue of the fact that he's on game day, part of ESPN's shoulder programming, the face of their biggest games every week, is it, going to put him in the spotlight, and it's going to have people walk into the conversation ready to, you know, and armed 
with, uh, you know, some accusations. Like, people are going to think he's biased no matter what, just by virtue of, you know, he makes picks, he calls games, you know, he's part of the programming. He's part of the, uh, the you know, the game day, the biggest show on ESPN. And, and he's got to be more careful here. He should not be going out of his way to make calls like this. He should not be sparring with Florida State fans on social media. It's a bad look in a number of ways. Anna's popping into the studio. The 5 at 5's coming up. We'll talk Super Bowl and Super Bowl and more. In the 5 o'clock hour, Demi Lawrence from the Portland Business Journal will be with us. She has interviewed the mayor of Beaverton today, asked about Major League Baseball to Beaverton, and uh, got some feedback on that front. Uh, Is the mayor of Beaverton behind the effort? Stick around. Anna's in the studio. Anna's in the studio. What? Fletch lives. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's like a. It's like you're warning a friend. I'm telling all the listeners, hey, that you're on speakerphone. Best I'm, behavior. I'm on my best behavior now. I know that. Everybody, <laughs> she's here. Watch what you say. Don't talk about her anymore. Yeah. Shh. Whatever we were saying before. Um, my favorite part of the show sometimes is when you come in. You come in cold. You have no idea what we've been talking about. Yeah, well, that's most we of the time. Throw you right into the Yeah, fray. what are we talking about today? Throw in, all right, we're talking about a couple different things. One of them is uh, whether or not uh, Dana Altman is going to come back next season. Yeah. Okay, he's under contract for several more years. Uh-huh. I think through 27, 28. Yeah. Um, and Stephen astutely pointed out that Altman's appearance on the show at 4 o'clock today reminded him of Jonathan Smith. Hmm. When he came on this show in November, and uh, he asked me, uh, or I asked him, you know, what whether or not he had had contact with other schools, blah blah blah, and he said this: Is does that mean that you have not had contact with those schools, or your agent hasn't, or you know, people were worried? They keep asking me, "Is he leaving? Is he yeah. leaving?" I said, "It's not his style." Yeah, well, and I'm not trying to be sarcastic here. It's like. Yeah. I've got an agent that's got a job. He best be finding out what what is out there and and people calling him, right? I mean, that's how that works. I can tell you from his his side, he best be working just because I'm paying him so much, right? They get a percentage (laughs) of I'm making him a couple million bucks. (laughs) I mean, so I'm not trying to be sarcastic. So, and I think any coach they're aware of what's potentially out there through if their if their agent's doing their job. And again, I'm not trying to would have dodged the question or anything, but I'm also trying to be truthful here yeah. of how this thing works. All right, so this Jonathan Smith, after that interview, I remember my dad heard that interview, and he goes, oh, he's gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, think, I think most of us felt yeah. that All instinctively. Right. Yeah. So Dana Altman, who hasn't looked like he's having much fun last three years, <laughs> okay, um, is uh, coming on the show today. Mm-hmm. Now, full disclosure, PJ Carlissimo yeah. came on before him, and, and he kind of set the table. He asked about, you know, I asked him, you know, would you want to coach in the NBA, want to coach in college? Here's what PJ said. Hmm. John, almost without exception, and I'm not just talking basketball, everybody's pulling their hair out. They're just, they're not the older guys that I'm closer with. I mean, I know a lot of the younger guys who were assistants and whatnot when I was uh, coaching and, and, you know, I've gotten to meet them. But they're all saying the same thing. Man, this is not what I signed up for. This job is different than it used to be. You have no control. It's so hard so difficult to coach freshmen they come in they want to play a lot they want to get a lot of shots or they're going to come in and tell you hey coach i can get so and so from uh this x team and and you know they all get the word to them you're not supposed to contact people that they go in the portal <laughs> but 
these guys all know. And it's like not just the, the really good ones, which is obvious. Like if you're anything but at the elite level, in a strange way, if your best player like really is playing way better than anybody thought, somebody's going to swoop in and offer him, you know, a better NIL situation. All right, there's PJ. Yeah. Okay. He really depicts it as a lot of fun. Yeah, PJ's like, come on in. <laughs> yeah. It's like being dragged naked through a field of broken glass. Yeah. It's, it's a load of fun. Sounds like a blast. So you tell me I can recruit a low-rated guy <laughs> and have him be really good and then lose him after a year? Awesome. Yeah. That sounds great. Okay, yeah. and so Dana Altman, who I've wondered, you saw him after the Oregon-Arizona game, uh-huh. sitting somber on the bench. Yeah. You were there. Yeah. Um, Altman uh, comes on the show, and I said, you know, how much longer do you want to do this? Okay. Okay. You know, I, as long as I feel like I'm the best guy for the job, I'll stay with it. Um, you know, if, if the people here ever want to make a change, I won't fight them. You know, I, I want to be where people are all in and, um, you know, Rob's been great. The administration's been great. Mr. Knight, Mr. Kilkenny, uh, people that our program really depend on, um, have been great. Um, but I, you know, I want to be here as long as they want me here. And, you know, we've, we've got to do a better job though, John, you know, and I'll be the first one to admit it. You know, NIT is not our goal. And, and you can say, well, you've had injuries, you know, we've, we've got plenty of excuses, but we can't use them. You know, we just, we got to get it done. And, um, so, you know, I've, I've got to do a better job. My staff, you know, we, we just got to be better. Does Dana Altman want to coach next year? I don't get the feeling that he's like hanging up the towel, but I do. I mean, that is not like a full throated. I'm all in, you know, I'm, I'm here for the long haul. Just that big sigh. That's what Steven said. That big sigh. The, at the big beginning. sigh. Yeah. Let's, let's hear that sigh again. You know, I, uh, as long as <laughs> yeah. it, it says everything you need to know, doesn't it? Uh, yeah. But that's why I think the next month is huge for him. Mm-hmm. They've got to win tonight. They play Washington tonight at home. It is a must win. Yeah. They got to beat Washington State on Saturday. Yeah. They need to be one of the top four teams going into the Pac-12 tournament, and they need to play fairly deep into the tournament. Mm-hmm. Like, they're good enough to be that team. And if the Pac-12's getting four teams in, Oregon needs to be one of them. And Dana Alban has to have a smile on his face at some point. I haven't seen the guy smile in, like, three years. Well, and to be clear, I mean, you played the Jonathan Smith uh, quote earlier, and the question there is, are you going somewhere else? I don't know that the question for Dana Altman is necessarily, are you going somewhere else? Is it, it's, isn't it more of a question of, are you, are you just kind of done coaching altogether? But I think he could still coach. He could go to a community college. He could go to a small college or a high school. I think he's got a love for the game. Yeah. And we talked about that in the interview. But it is a, I, I, it, it's more of a, are you having fun doing this anymore kind of conversation. Yeah. And I think we all know he's, he's not having as much fun as he used to have. You know, when he, when he was able to coach guys and keep them around. I, I think every one of these games, like normally I'm not looking at these games between now and the tournament, in, mm-hmm. you know, in mid-March yeah. as like vital. Right. I think all of these games are very important to Dana Altman and the arc of what he does next. 
I think tonight you got to pay attention to 7 o'clock at Matthew Knight Arena. Does he win? Does Oregon play well? Is he happy after the game? Okay, good. Then Saturday, does he win? Otherwise, Oregon's got to start looking, I think, and have a short list of who comes in and coaches this team after Dana Altman. The 5 at 5 is coming up. We're going to talk a little bit about baseball to Portland in the 5 o'clock hour as well. I just love that story. Patrick Beverly traded today. Heading to the Milwaukee Bucks. Covered this a little earlier, but uh, basically uh, he's got to make amends with Damian Lillard. They've got a beef. Now go be teammates. Is Beverly the equivalent of, like, Drew Holiday? Is that their answer to that, like, perimeter defense? But poor man's Drew Holiday? I mean, that that's their help. I don't think he is. I think he's more of a goon, like, in hockey. Like, he, he knows his job. He knows what he's supposed to do. And it's to make people mad. So it is a good fit of being, like, the seventh, eighth guy in the team. He's going to come in and just try to irritate the other guards. But I think his defensive ability is overrated. Um, and especially at his age, it's definitely overrated. But do you think this is a Doc Rivers move? I think it's a, it's a we traded for Damian Lillard and, you know, trade away all of the future because we need to win move. Like, mm. Patrick Beverly is a win now player. He's not a win later player. Like he does actually help teams, so I think it's just like, you know what, we need to get any type of defender that can play right now on this team because our defense is bad. Yeah, I mean, because I, I one, of the, one of the stories from the summer was Doc Rivers talked Patrick Beverly into signing with the Sixers. And now, you know, I think that Doc's telling his ownership group, I need that guy. That's the missing piece. I, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to be the missing piece, but I, I he's reuniting it, with him. I do think it says something about Damian Lillard's defense and how he doesn't trust his defense. Like, we need mm-hmm. another guard in there to guard because Dame's not going to. We're not. We don't have the D. Uh, Anna is in the studio. Again, alerting everyone. We're going to – I don't know. I <laughs> just on. I just was trying to set the stage for you Doing the five at five. We have the five biggest stories in sports. Here we go. The five at five. Number one. What do you got? What do you got? What's going on here? So the 49ers fell victim to an early morning fire alarm at their hotel in Vegas today. The fire alarm went off at the Hilton Lake Las Vegas Resort and Spa. That's where the 49ers are staying ahead of the championship matchup against Kansas City. And Kyle Shanahan saying, hey, didn't affect the coaches. They were already up at 6 a.m. He did hear from the players about it. What's going on there? I think it's the Chiefs. Little shenanigans. But I, the other thing that doesn't make sense to me is, you know, if you're going to pull the fire alarm, 6 a.m. is not going to do it. <laughs> you got to go earlier. If you're really trying to disrupt the 49ers, you got to go at like three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. You know, at 6 a.m., 6 a.m., you know, a lot of those guys naturally would be up. But 6 a.m., Niners are very quickly becoming, I think they can uh, put a chip on their shoulder. Kyle Shanahan can say, hey, we're victimized here. Is that part of the aim? Look at the grass is no good. Or are they just complaining? Decide for yourself. Moving on. Number two. Uh, Deion Sanders praising Brock Purdy as the NFL's best story in the last two decades. 
I love how Coach Sanders just stops by Radio Row at the Super Bowl because he's like there, right? And so he's got to have some conversations with the media. And he's making a bold proclamation about Brock Purdy. He says the kid is phenomenal with what he has accomplished. He needs a Brock Purdy at Colorado. He does. <laughs> yeah, he does. He needs a bunch of Brock Purdies. He needs a bunch of guys that are going to come in and play hard and overachieve. And, um, you know, look, uh, he said it's the best story in the Super Bowl in two decades. Last player taken in the, in the NFL. draft. In the NFL. Last player picked to the Super Bowl. He even said it. He said, shoot, I'm looking for a Brock Purdy to come to Colorado. Um, by the way, you can't, it's a dead period. You can't really say that. He's recruiting. Uh-huh. Can't say. Oh. He's not supposed to talk like that. But, huh. but uh, well. you know, there you go. Do you uh, think it's true, though? I mean, is, is, is Brock Purdy that good? Or is the criticism right that he's really more of a product of the players around him? Well, they're all a product of the players around him. Christian McCaffrey's a product of the players around him. You know, it. It's that's what football is. It's 11 on 11. It's, you know, yes, you can have a player that is a game changing player, but I'm here to tell you if Christian McCaffrey's not running behind the left side of that 49ers offensive line, he's not what he is. His numbers aren't what they are. I mean, you know, is, is Christian McCaffrey really the best running back in the NFL? Eh, might not be. Why are you making a face at me? I'm not. This is just my face. Okay. But I, I just think too much gets made of it. It's two weeks. People have nothing to talk about, and so this becomes everything gets dissected to the nth degree. You know, who has the edge, Patrick Mahomes or Brock Purdy? Mahomes is the better player. But, you know, Purdy, you know, if you talk about quarterbacks who were either drafted really low or went undrafted, who played in a Super Bowl, like Purdy's in that conversation. But I think Brock Purdy does more for the Niners than Trent Dilfer did for the Ravens. I think he does more for the Niners than Jeff Hostetler did for the Giants when he was playing. I, I think that there are, you know, as a Super Bowl quarterback, I think you could put him, you know, in the middle to bottom half range of talents who have led teams to Super Bowls. But that's... That's not his role on the 49ers team. He's not there to drop back and sit in the pocket like Dan Marino or do what Patrick Mahomes did or do what Tom Brady did. But, um, you know, could we argue that Troy Aikman or Ben Roethlisberger were products of the system and the talent around him? Of course. You can do that with almost anybody. I just want to know if he's still living in the same modest apartment that he was living in for a long time. I think time. he is. There Remember was a GoFundMe. There was a GoFundMe from fans. <laughs> number three. Here's the news everyone's been waiting for. Okay, number three. The Chiefs and the 49ers uh, have finalized their post-game party plans. I know. I know. Steven's just been dying to know where they're going to go. Let's, uh, let's see. Steven, do you know where they're going? I don't know. Okay, so you know Vegas. And I want to know where you think... The Niners and the Chiefs, which hotel are they having their post-game parties at? Well, it's the, either the win or the encore. That's what I would guess. I would have guessed win, encore, Cosmo. Um, because I hang out, I hang out at those clubs. <laughs> but um, like I, Anna, I, I've seen Shaq at the win and the encore, so I feel like 
I feel like that's where it'd be. When Encore has got, uh, I think it's called FX. It's called XS. XS. That's right. FX, XS. Been there. I know I've been there. Um, I had a couple drinks, forgive me, for <laughs> mixing up some consonants. Yeah. <laughs> and they weren't cheap. Uh, they were there last year. I think that's where they went last year. Excess. So they're changing it up. Yeah, they're not going to be right. a win encore. The 49ers uh, will be at the Omnia nightclub. That's at, at Caesar's, Caesar's Palace. Caesar's, yeah. Yep. Omnia. That's the place. Very nice place. Where they, I liked it. They have these moments, like every forty-five minutes or so, where they, like, they strobe the lights, they put confetti, oh, so much confetti on the ground, and then they blow like cold, foggy yeah. air at you, and it's supposed to be very exciting. It is exciting. Kind of freaks me out. Yeah. Yeah, but Kansas City, they're gonna be at Resorts World, at the Zook. At the food court. At the, <laughs> at the Zook <laughs> nightclub. I've been in there. Mm-hmm. I was there. Pac-12 Media Day was there. It was. It was in the Zook nightclub. Oh, yeah. it was. Yep. Oh, That's wow. where the. It's it's rather. Um, I thought it was kind of small, huh. kind of a small space. Okay. So maybe it's a very exclusive thing. Advantage well, yeah. 49ers then. Yeah, I think the Niners. Like it's going to be some kind of party when the Chiefs lose the game. <laughs> it's not like like everybody can go. It's just going to be for the team and their families. And, and Taylor them. Swift. And, and Taylor Swift. Number four. All right. Let's talk about the A's. What is going on with the A's? They are uh, having a little bit of a tough time getting started on their proposed Las Vegas ballpark. Uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred has seemingly put owner John Fisher on the clock saying, I would be disappointed, let me say it that way, if we didn't open that stadium opening day 2028. Uh, so this comes after the mayor of Las Vegas, Carolyn Goodman, came out earlier in the week and said that she, uh, that you know, she was kind of, I, I think she was being passive aggressive, completely passive aggressive, and trying to, you know, put the A's in a position where she wants them to build the ballpark on Fremont Street. She calls it historic downtown. <laughs> okay? She wants to, you know, but she's also... They want to be on the strip where everything else is. They mm-hmm. want to be where it's cool and where the people are and where the congestion is because that's where people are. And so there's this whole tug of war going on with Carolyn Goodman and the A's. Here's what she's talking about. Listen to her as she talks about the A's ballpark location and how it doesn't make sense. We had entertained them down here. We have a very large complex, probably about 60 acres. We probably could cobble together more land so they could possibly have a hundred acres um, and it's in the historic old part of town which is where all major interstate highways come together we have seven access points to it it is in an opportunity zone there are all these benefits and so when they said no I thought hmm this doesn't make sense here's a great site they can get a great price on it because it's owned by the city we went out to reach for them and yet no they're going to go out want to get closer to the strip with all the congestion and everything and i thought this does not make sense and so why is it happening and then i thought well because they really want to stay in oakland they want to be on the water they have that magnificent 
um, dream, and yet they can't get it on. So she's basically saying, oh, because you don't want to be in downtown, you must want to be back in Oakland. You know, your site doesn't make sense to be at Tropicana, knock down the Tropicana and build a stadium on what is a pretty small footprint on the Strip. Uh, so she's trying to leverage. She's since walked that back and said she'd love to have the A's in Vegas. Now Rob Manfred saying this he, this is gonna this better get done. He sounds like a parent. I'd be very <laughs> disappointed if your rooms are not clean when I get back from the store. <laughs> By 2008, he wants the stadium ready for opening day. Um, this feels like a high school debate club. Yeah. It needs know? to end. This this saga is dragging down know, baseball. It is. It just it needs is. to like they need some kind of resolution. My question, though, like, Stephen, would you leave the Strip to go to, you know, historic Fremont Street uh, to watch a baseball game if you're going to Vegas? Not a chance, no. Really? No. Not a chance. I wouldn't either. Unequivocally, no. No, I I don't know that I want to go back to historic uh, Las Vegas anymore. We were down there. Fremont Anna Street. Anna and I, I went down there. I don't yeah. It's just not my, not my place. It's Anna, a little rough. Anna, we went down there because we wanted to play that horse race game that you love so much. Yeah. We found it on uh, Facebook, and they said it's down here on Fremont Street. It Come was at on the in. D Casino. The D, and we go down to the D, and uh, it was a little sketch. <laughs> the D How would you sketch, describe huh? it? How would you describe it? Um, it was just. Uh, I think there. Mm, I've been. How do I put Stop this? being nice. Just say it. Spit it out. There were illegal things, illegal <laughs> things happening left and right. <laughs> That's all. I mean, yeah. that's the that's the clearest way I can put it. It's a little bit like being in Thailand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Among the illegal things that were okay. happening, yes. Okay. So, no, it being down in historic Vegas solves a problem for the mayor of Vegas, but it creates a problem for the A's because there's already a perception if you're the Oakland A's that you are less than. The Raiders left and went to Vegas. Mm-hmm. You're you're left behind. The Warriors went to San Francisco. You're less than. You were second, third, fourth rate anyway when you were in Oakland. The last thing that A's want to do is go to Vegas and be second, you know, third, fourth rate behind Carrot Top and David Copperfield and everything. Like n- nobody's going to go down there. It's inconvenient. It's it's really inconvenient. Well, it's hard enough to navigate the strip, let alone leave the strip and you know go to fremont yeah they don't make it easy do they no all right finally number five vegas looks like we're experts or something really not um let's end on soccer uh soccer's supposedly going to try the blue card and it's a 10 minute sit out thing it'll be somewhere between the red card and the yellow card. The blue card would be the first new card for referees to issue since 1970. Did you know that's when the yellow card and the red card were introduced? Blue, incidentally, was picked over orange to ensure that the card looks distinct from yellow and red. So they still have to approve this. Uh, so this is like in between? Yeah, it's between yellow and red. Um, yeah. And it sounds like they're going to try this out at the lower levels. At the lower levels, yeah. like FIFA, very clearly is saying, like, "Hey, we need this thing to be. This is premature. Any trial of this should be limited to testing in a responsible manner at lower levels." I, um, I kind of like in soccer that there's a little bit of a warning, and then it you're get you get a red card. Yeah. Okay. Let's a little bit like parenting. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think not three strikes yeah, around. I hear a lot two. of people talking about like the blue card. This is going to make it better for the officials because uh-huh. some referees have a difficult time using a yellow and then a red, like the finality of the red card, I guess. Uh-huh. But I like I like if I'm an official, I like to, uh, you know. I like to have the authority, like, just a very quickly. I guess you still could go to red. but Well, so two blue cards in a match would result in a red card yeah. for a player. But I guess the officials are saying they take a lot of abuses on the borderline. Yeah. And the blue card allows them to be, like, more punitive. Like, they, you know, doesn't have to be like you're out of the game. Yeah. But, hey, I've had enough of your abuse. Blue card. It's a 10-minute sit-out. Uh, I'll get, all right, I'm not a soccer official, <laughs> but I'm going to give it my blessing. For now, you just said yeah, I'm just, that I just you said. like the simplicity of the no, red card I, and the yellow. I know, card. but I after considering that, because what I'm thinking about is I'm trying to put myself in the position of the official. Yeah. So the official has a red card. Yeah. Let's just say, all right, you and Steven are on opposite teams. You guys are both just bitching at me the whole time. Okay? Jeez. Just bitching and complaining <laughs> the whole time. All right. Now I know if I pull out the red card. I'm putting your team at a distinct disadvantage. Sure. You're done. You're gone. Mm-hmm. You know, yellow doesn't mean anything. Red card, you're gone. So I'm going to hesitate to pull the red card because I don't want to tip the balance of the game just because mm-hmm. you're bitching at me all the time. Okay? Calm so. down. So is this like the penalty box in hockey? Yes. Says the person who has no idea yes. how hockey goes. Because now I can go, Anna, you get a blue card. Yeah. You're bitching at me all the time. It's- <laughs> Just stop it. Steven. <laughs> it's like a timeout. It's like a timeout. Steven, you're bitching at me all the time. You got a blue card yourself. Like, see? It gives you... It's, it is a timeout. I think we're going to get a blue card in our household. It's scary. I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> all right. By the way, our kids were listening earlier when you used the word jackass on oh, air, no. and they were aghast. They were like, don't they know? oh, it's a bad word. Yeah, I'm glad they're that way. <laughs> Have they ever met you? Or? <laughs> they haven't been <laughs> listening to me enough, apparently. All right, coming up, Demi Lawrence is going to talk about the mayor of Beaverton. Is she in or out when it comes to Major League Baseball? Demi did an interview today at City Hall in Beaverton with Mayor Beatty, who talked about baseball. Uh, enthusiastic thumbs up, thumbs down. We'll find out coming up. Plus some parting thoughts on parents in youth sports who are bitching at the officials all the time. Got to stop that. Leave it here. We've been talking a lot about Major League Baseball to Portland, and um, you know I love it when journalists advance the ball. Demi Lawrence of the Portland Business Journal had a great piece this morning on that really advanced the ball. She got a sit-down with the mayor of Beaverton, Lacey Beatty, is the mayor there, and uh, joining us now, Demi Lawrence, the Oregon Sports Writer of the Year. Hey, congrats on that, by the way. Thanks, John. I appreciate it, and thanks for having me on. Give me an idea. Um, you go into the meeting with the mayor. Clearly, the, the Portland Diamond Projects, you know, they would like to buy 164 acres in the city of Beaverton, Washington County. Everybody's kind of wondering where the mayor's head is on this. And so, you know, what do you gather in sitting down with Mayor Beatty of, of Beaverton? Right. Yeah. You know, I think that she's real enthusiastic, as, uh, you know, the city of Beaverton should be. I think it's an incredible opportunity uh, for them at a local level. Um, But, 
you know, as we all know, this plot of land and getting this doesn't mean the team is necessarily coming. Uh, so in our conversation, you know, she was quite measured. Uh, she was pretty pragmatic and, and realistic about, uh, you know, the opportunity and, and uh, relative likelihood um, of possibly, you know, getting an MLB team on that plot of land. So it was a great conversation, um, but I think she's playing a real realistic game right now. Yeah, and I think, I mean, part of it is they've got to obtain the land. And, and as far as I know, they're, you know, they have had an appraisal I think the Diamond Project's appraisal may have come in somewhere in the 50 to $55 million range. The city of Portland's appraisal came in in that same range. But getting the land is the first step. And I, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the mayor of Beaverton. You'd obviously want to come out and support this thing, but you also don't want to attach yourself to it until it becomes real. Am I reading that right? Yeah, yeah, I'd say that's pretty fair. And I mean, for what it's worth, uh, you and I both know that this wasn't the only plot of land that has been talked about for this project, right? And I think the plot of land is owned right now by Portland, but it's in Beaverton, so it's kind of this weird, you know, who owns it, who's going to sell it, all that kind of good stuff. And so, you know, the uh, mayor of Portland, Ted Wheeler, has been very openly supportive of wanting an MLB team in the region, but has made it clear that he would prefer if it was in Portland Metro. So we've kind of a lot of, got a lot of competing interests here, but I think everyone who is involved with the process knows that the most realistic option is to have it at that red tail property that, you're right, has been appraised around the 50-55 mil. What, do you, what did Mayor Beatty have to say, you know, as it pertained to, kind of, you know, people immediately that I talked with and, had, you know, callers on the show talked about traffic, they talked about infrastructure. Did you get in the weeds with her on that stuff? I did, yes, because as we know, uh, that plot of land is pretty close to Washington Square Mall. It's close to a lot of things that have a lot of traffic already. So I asked her what infrastructure concerns there were going to be, and the first thing she mentioned was expanding the West End rail line. I don't remember what it's, I think it's West Express. Uh, something with an S after that, but it would need expansion. Um, and she talked about that. And she's been wanting to do that, she said, since she became a, the mayor in 2020. So I think this is a really great opportunity for her to, uh, you know, complete some political things that she's been wanting to do. But also she talked about the need, not just desire, but the need for this proposed stadium to be put into the landscape in a beneficial way that's going to be helpful, not just for when there's baseball games, right? Like, be able to have it to be a community hub so that people can get in and out easy, have there be commercial and retail space possibly around it, and really make it not just this thing that you go to, you park, you go, and you go home, but really make it a community hub. Yeah, as I ask questions about it for people who are involved or or even the um, even the commercial real estate folks that are out there, and they talk about the possibility for parks, uh, water, walking paths, bike paths, and 164 acres is huge. If I'm the mayor in Beaverton, I, I want this to be an asset to the community, not just, hey, we're bringing some tax revenue in. Uh, do you get a sense of how Washington County, Beaverton, Tigard all fit together on this, Demi? Right. So I think they're all, you know, very excited for the opportunity for all of the reasons that you said, right? Like Portland, still in the national news, kind of has this doom and gloom kind of aura around it. But all of us who are here know that there is a lot of opportunity. And so I think they're all looking at this as a prime opportunity to not only get Portland Metro back on the map, but their individual cities as well, right? You know, obviously, Beaverton has its own interests. Tiger has its own interests. Washington County has its own interests. But I think this could be a real opportunity for all of them to come together and really make something great for the future of the entire region. We're talking to Demi Lawrence of the Portland Business Journal. Met with Mayor Beatty, Lacey Beatty in Beaverton. Um, you know, 
what other things come up when you have a conversation with the mayor and you're talking about this? Obviously, I'm most interested in, like, you know, on a 1 to 10 scale, where's her enthusiasm? Is it 5 or better? You know, is, you know, or is, is she seem supportive of this? And I, and I kind of wonder beyond that, you know, if she just needs to wait and see what the Diamond Project does. I mean, they're going to have to get control of the land for this to move any further. Right. Yeah, I think there's definitely a wait and see uh, mentality with Mayor Beattie, which is very rightful, right? Like you don't want to attach yourself to this when it's not necessarily a done deal yet. We still got to get the team. We still got to get the land. We still got to build the stadium. We're in, in such the infancy of this project that I think it's incredibly valid for her to be as measured as she is. But she's still enthusiastic from what I got. You know, I'd say it's maybe, you know, it is five or better, but I think she is a bit pragmatic and measured in that sense because, you know, you don't want to get so attached to it and then boom, it's gone. You've already put all this time and money into it. But I, I you know, I bring up money. I asked her about funding uh, and she wasn't able to talk uh, to that, but I got a quote from uh, the Portland Diamond Project uh, director, Craig Cheek, and he mentioned it was going to be a lot of mostly private investment, private equity, and things like that. So that's even still a very broad stroke, and I'm sure we'll get more details on that as this continues. But like I said, the land, Portland's still got to decide if they want to sell the land, city of Portland uh, being that. Yeah, Demi Lawrence with us. Any idea on the timeline of that? And my understanding is, you know, there are five votes, the four city commissioners and the mayor, they need four to uh, obtain the land. And so, you know, I, they don't necessarily need the mayor, but it certainly would help, I think, Mayor Ted Wheeler, if he uh, got on board. He shouldn't be, they shouldn't be like a four-to-one vote just because he would be mad about it not going to the Lloyd Center. <laughs> but do you have a sense on how that is tracking? Um, I actually don't, and that's a great uh, topic to go on for another story. But like I said earlier, I think uh, I think Mayor Wheeler really wants it in Portland Metro. But the reality of the situation is that Lloyd Center lot is caught up in a bunch of contracts. The space isn't large enough for what they want to do is what a lot of people are saying. And a lot of folks are, uh, as a result of that, turning their heads to red tail now. And so I'm not really sure where he stands on that. I think it'd be a darn shame uh, to, you know, let something fall apart just because you want it in the Portland, you know, heart of Portland. Portland Metro is a vast, vast area. And the plot of land, the Red Tail Golf Course, is not far from downtown Portland. So I think downtown Portland would still benefit in hotel stays and restaurants and retail from the stadium being, uh, you know, just a few miles out of the city in Beaverton. Now, Dami, I noticed uh, your phone number is a 317 area code. That's that's Indiana. I worked in the, yes, I worked sir. in Indiana. Get, what's with the three one seven? Yeah, so I was born and raised in a suburb of Indiana, Indianapolis called Fishers. Uh, I went to Hamilton Southeastern High School there, and then I went to Ball State University, Chirp Chirp, in northeastern <laughs> Indiana in Muncie. Uh, I still have – I'm an only child, but my family still lives in Indiana. Shout out, Dad. He's probably listening to this. He's a huge fan, like I told you. And, yeah, so I've kept the phone number, and I'll keep it for as long as I can because getting a new phone number is a pain in the butt. Yeah, so your dad's a listener to the show. I love that. So this yeah. uh, this will be a thrill. I think this is your second appearance. We'll have to have you back on more regularly. Um, my time in Indiana. So I was covering IU basketball. Bobby Knight was the coach, and I covered Purdue as well. And I drove all over, and I can remember a whole bunch of different things, like uh, Dan Quayle Museum. Is that right? 
I think so. Yeah, I spent a little bit of time at Purdue. Uh, love Mackey Arena. Honestly, probably one of my favorite arenas in the entire state. But there's so many to choose from, as you know. I love Hinkle as well. There's never a bad game at Hinkle. It's Indiana, such a great place for sports. I feel so great. To, I feel so grateful to be from there and in the sports industry now. Yeah, and you drive like I remember driving through all these uh, small towns and. Uh, you know, between the cities, and you literally see, like, the scene from Hoosiers where there's a barn and then a tractor and then somebody has put a basket, you know, out in the middle yeah. of nowhere. It's 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 yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's really cool. You know, being, being a sports reporter now, it's super special being from such a historic state, not just for sports in general, but basketball. You know, I'm five foot four. I never played basketball in my life, but I still have such a love an appreciation for it because it runs in my blood as a Hoosier, you know, it's, it's just so special. So it's so funny that we both have a connection to Indiana. I love whenever I go back to super special time. All right. Demi Lawrence, she is the Oregon sports writer of the year. Her and Sean Hyken uh, being co-sports writers of the year. Congrats on that. Celebrate it. And we'll get you back on when you have more on the baseball front. Awesome. Thank you, John. I appreciate the time and the honor. So Domino's, Beginning to fall. Um, I think there was probably some hope in downtown Portland at City Hall from Mayor Ted Wheeler and certainly his chief of staff, uh, Bobby Lee, who has emerged, I think, as a very interesting figure behind the scenes in this whole baseball effort. I think there was probably some hope that there wouldn't be enthusiasm for baseball with the city of Beaverton. Um, and uh, you're hearing there from Demi Lawrence, who has interviewed the mayor of Beaverton, Lacey Beatty, and uh, saying that there's some enthusiasm there. It's, of course, measured. It should be until the Diamond Project gets control of that 164 acres. Um, I think the mayor of Beaverton's got to play much the same role that the mayor in Las Vegas played in saying, yeah, look, we have open arms, we're welcome to this, and then see how it unfolds. And, and you know, here's the thing. Like, there are... A line of people out there that the Diamond Project has identified as um, partners in this stadium project, no doubt. You don't just dream up a stadium over overnight. But a lot of that clout and the big-time investors that are behind this thing, they're not going to emerge until they know that there's a parcel of land under control, under ownership. And then it gets real. And then the other thing is, look, and this is why, you know, anything you do in this space is a long shot, but you got to take your shot. Uh, it, after that, it becomes about Major League Baseball being interested in Portland. Are they interested in Portland? Rob Manfred, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, I have questions for him. I need to get him on the show. Ask him, you know, what gets his attention? Is Portland still on the short list? And by Portland, I mean now the city of Beaverton in Washington County. And beyond that, um, you know, does 164 acres, which would be the largest stadium development in the history of Major League Baseball, does that move the needle for Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball? Salt Lake City, one of the competitors here, they are more evolved, more sophisticated. They've got, you know, the Miller family out front banging the drum, you know, and there's a lot of support and momentum there. Diamond Project. Trying to play from behind here, but uh, strong move. Negotiations ongoing for that parcel of land. Some parting thoughts about the Super Bowl coming up. You got the BFT statewide on the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. I got a lot of feedback about the column that I wrote today at johnconzano.com. And if you're not already subscribed, grab a free subscription, grab a paid subscription. 
whatever works for you works for me. But I uh, post most days, and uh, that's where I'm writing exclusively now. And if you want to read what I have to say today about youth sports, and particularly a message for youth sports parents, um, then you can find that at johnconzano.com. But I got an email this week, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, from a concerned citizen who believes that there is something going on out there with you, parents, you, uh, as it pertains to youth sports. The latest episode, sixth-grade girls' basketball team in the suburbs of Portland, coached by a woman who was not pleased with the team's defensive effort on Saturday. Coach told the players it was a lazy effort. Also, she said she didn't like the poor body language of the players sitting on the bench during the game. Uh, parents, of course, did not appreciate their children's output being described as lazy, even though it probably was lazy, even though parents probably turned to their kids who were sitting on the sofa and uh, have not done their chores, cleaned their room, done their homework, and said, you know, don't be lazy. Um, what's, uh, what's good for, uh, the coach is not necessarily good for the parents situation, but parents were not happy. They complained to the league and the coaching staff on Monday was asked to step down. I wrote a lot about it and it's something that's been on my mind. Um, you know, of course there are some positive benefits to kids who are playing sports. They get better grades. They have fewer behavioral problems, less likely to be involved in a teen pregnancy, healthier kids in general, huge positives. But I always talk about the two unsung heroes that are in the equation as maybe the most valuable things that kids can get from sports. They are confidence and perseverance. They stay with you for life. And they are not derived, no matter how much you want them to be parents, by parents hovering around nearby, shouting at the referees, manipulating the coach, working really hard to keep your child from having anything resembling a poor outcome. No, no, no. Resilience, parents, and confidence, they're built from hardship. You know, life is hard. Bad things happen. People get sick. They get fired from their job. You have a bad relationship or a bad boss. You catch a tough break. Life is not always fair, right? And uh, you don't want the first time that your young person faces an obstacle to be like age 25, 28, 35. You don't want that because... Those types of situations at that age, they're, they're, they have serious repercussions, right? What, the first time your child faces an obstacle, it should be at 7, 8, 9, 11. And your role as a parent, if you really want to prepare your child for life, is to support your kid, talk with your kid, encourage your kid, let them gain the uh, resilience that comes through from working through a tough situation, don't fix it for them. Don't do anything for them that they can do for themselves, more or less. But support them. Let them know you love them. Let them know you're there. And, you know, that's where confidence is built. Confidence is not built from the victory. Confidence is built from overcoming the defeat and then going on to break through and have a victory. That's where confidence is born from. And too many parents confuse the confidence derived in youth sports with the trophy, that's not it. I can tell you, I have a box of trophies in my garage. I haven't looked at them in decades. I don't even know where they are. But I can tell you, the confidence that I derive from playing youth sports, I know exactly where it is. I'm pointing at my chest right now. I know where the resilience is. You know, I saw um, I saw somebody yesterday talking uh, about, you know, uh, whether or not, you know, a rain dance 
is actually uh, capable of bringing rain. And the person said, well, if you dance long enough, it will rain. I thought that was really a profound statement, right? Let your kid dance through, and when the rain cut him, say, hey, you know, that you, you stayed with it. Um, CYO sports, I love. I know it's not considered like club sports on the same level, but Sister Krista, who runs the CYO organization here in Oregon, does a remarkable job. Coaches are volunteers. The officials are teenagers. Spectators are reminded Stay positive. You're here for the enjoyment of the children, not your own enjoyment. And uh, I have always said that CYO in rec sports, safe place for kids to fail. Think about how important that is, having a safe place to fail. Now, we had J.J. Burden on the show a couple days ago, and, you know, I did that interview with him. I've been thinking about J.J. since the interview. You know, he's a great story, right? He was like 133 pounds in high school, and... You know, at Lake Ridge High School, he had no scholarship offers. He goes to Oregon. He doesn't play at Oregon in his first few seasons. And then he only played a little bit as a junior and senior. Like his his whole college career, four seasons, he scored one touchdown. And, you know, it wasn't like this remarkable scholarship career. But J.J. Burden plays nine years in the NFL. And it's been bugging me, you know, that I didn't ask him, you know, what was it that made you stay with it? What is it that made you, like, it's a great underdog story, right? But he could have quit. He could have gone to sell insurance. He could have complained about not getting a fair shake. He could have decided that the universe was telling him that football's not his thing. We all look for reasons to quit. But he refused. And so I reached back out to J.J. this morning. And I said, you know, tell me about what happened that made you so resilient. Because... You weren't resilient and opportunistic at age 27 when you kept showing up and you got cut by a couple NFL teams, got cut by a third NFL team. He kept coming back like he's 27 years old. I said, I, I said to JJ, I said, you had to have picked that up earlier in childhood. And I'll let you hear it in JJ Burden's words. So here's what you don't know. So I was raised by a single parent mom. She dropped out of high school when she was a junior. And she worked really hard to take care of my older brother and my younger sister. And I remember she just had this attitude, I got to do what I can to take care of my children. And she once, she had a job as a welder. She worked at FMC. And she was the only woman there working amongst all these men. And, and I'd watch her come home in the big boots and the big jacket and just struggle. But she'd come home, hey, you do what it takes to take care of your children. So I, I, that part of hard work, you do what it takes, that was instilled there. J.J. Burden did not play sports in middle school. He was busy riding the bus to school and back. He didn't play in high school as a freshman or sophomore. Found track before his junior year. He's a great story. Too small, not good enough. But what J.J. saw was his mother demonstrate this work ethic that you know, he later emulated. And it's really worth noting, you know, as we're all pushing our kids in sports to have success and break through and get a scholarship and be the best, that the bigger takeaway is probably that our kids are watching us like J.J. watched his mother and learning from us. It was a gift that his mother gave him. It's like Warren Buffett said. People ask Warren Buffett, you know, for parenting advice. And he said, more kids are ruined by the behavior of their parents than the size of their inheritance. The behavior matters. 
And parents, you've lost your minds. Just ask anyone who's coached a youth sports team. I talked to two prominent coaches today, and I asked them about parents. And one of them told me parents are way too involved, and they got way more involved after the pandemic. Level of anxiety already sky high on the kids, pressure on the kids. And parents have now added to it. The other coach said, hey, there have always been helicopter parents, but the difference is you've got parents coming at coaches stronger, younger coaches not able to push back like they did years ago. He said it's almost like the parents identify a young coach. There's blood in the water, right? And then they they go on attack. I also think, and we've touched on this on the show today, I also think parents feel more vested in what's happening because the cost of the youth sports experience, particularly club sports, is sky high. So they're vested in it. They're invested in it. You know, and, and you know, I've heard parents, people I'm related to, that they feel increasing pressure to keep up with the other families. They're paying for private lessons. They're specializing. They've got the best baseball bat or the best equipment. We've got to get that too. And I'm here to tell you that the American Academy of Pediatrics published a report that says that 70% of kids will drop out of organized sports activities by the age of 13. And there are three culprits that you need to look out for. They are overuse, overtraining, and burnout. So you heard Dana Altman's interview on the show today. If you didn't, go back and listen to it. He talked about his youth experience as a walk-on at community college and a high school player that wasn't very good. So I've, I've always really enjoyed the game. I had a great high school coach, John, and that goes back. You know, the, the guys that really do a great job are the junior college or the junior high coaches and the high school coaches. You know, that's, that's where the love of the game, you know, if you're going to love the game. And I had a great high school coach, Dave Ullman, and I wasn't any good, but he worked with me all the time. And, uh, and then I walked on into junior college. I was a really bad player, but I just loved the game and wanted to play. And, John, do you know how bad you have to be to walk on into junior college? I mean, <laughs> you know, it's one thing to walk on at the University of Oregon or, you know, a great school, but I walked on into junior college and, um, you know, just because I loved the game and I wanted to play. He talked about playing all night in the summer and in the winter, the ball, so the basketball would freeze and they, they kept a basketball in the radiator so they could keep playing. There were no parents involved. They just loved the game. So here is my plea. To youth sports parents, the coaches are fed up with you. The opposing players on the other team, they do not deserve your ire. Nor does the official who's out there maybe making $15 an hour, maybe volunteering. Without the officials, you're not going to have a game, okay? So parents, calm the bleep down. Ask yourself, are you part of the problem? You know, if you are yelling at the official, if you are uh, yelling at the coach or trying to undermine the coach with a secret meeting, you are part of the problem. Now, you know, I pointed out in print today, like I realized that I'm arguing for sanity in the same week that a college football player bought a Lamborghini for $273,000. But I'm left thinking today about, you know, there are bad calls in life, folks. It's okay in your youth sports game if you get a bad call. In fact, it might benefit your kid to show your kid, hey, you got a bad call. What are you going to do about it now? Go out there 
and win in spite of it. Break through, overcome it. That's how you build resilience. That's how you build perseverance. That's how you build confidence. So, you know, parents, just calm down. That's my PSA for today. All right, we're back with another great show tomorrow. We'll focus on the Super Bowl. I like the Niners in the Super Bowl. You know that, but I am biased as heck. There is a 49er flag hanging on my porch as I speak. So you tell me. Tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. I posted a poll about the Super Bowl. Weigh in on it. Find me there. Make sure you're following me on Instagram as well, at John Canzano. And I'm on TikTok if that's your thing. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time. Just a good time. Have a great night, everybody. We're back tomorrow. Another great Friday show. And if you have a kid who's playing youth sports, remember, this is not about you and your enjoyment. This is not about your ability to second-guess a coach or yell at an official. That experience is supposed to be an investment in your kid, and it's okay if they fail. Make it a safe place to fail. See what they do about it. See if they build some, some resilience some perseverance, because less than 1% of college Division One draft-eligible players are going to be drafted. You know, you don't need to be a math major to understand that, you know, if you go to high school or youth sports or club sports, it's, it's like a lightning strike to become a pro athlete, okay? The bigger thing here is that your kids potentially develop some personal skills, learn how to cope with uh, bad outcome, learn how uh, their hard work correlates uh, and their skill correlates with success, and they learn how to deal with uh, difficult people, bad boss, tough coworker. They're going to deal with these things in life. Why not let them deal a little bit with it as a youth athlete? We're back tomorrow with another great show.